Hi, everybody. Okay. Welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I'm Jim Laskowski. I'm Patrick Ripple. And we're, <laughs> we're saying our names in sing-songy voices. That's true. Uh, we want to, because we're here to sing the praises of Mario Bava. And with us, we have uh, Directors Club writer, um, all-around great guy. You know him from the Argento episode. You know him from uh, DVDactive.com. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay, good, good, good. I to say. know him is to love him. That's right, Gabe <laughs> Powers. Hello. <laughs> That's all, Gabe. Got. We'd like to thank Gabe for joining us, and uh, we'll catch you next week. On uh... no, um, so uh, Gabe is here. Uh, last time he was here to talk about Argento. This time he's here to talk about maybe the progenitor. Uh, if, if Argento is maybe fancy word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, 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 a, I'm a fancy man, and I got a, I got a dictionary <laughs> for ten cents, uh, and it's full of five cent words. Um, I think if, if Argento is sort of the face of Italian. Horror and uh, the most notable fate, uh, probably the progenitor, would be Mario Bava. Um, that sounds about right. Yeah. So like uh, and uh, someone I really loved. Uh, and yeah. I, uh, so it's, it's going to be exciting to talk about. Uh, yeah, I think it's very fitting. You know, as a we're, we're both huge fans of the horror genre to sort of see where a lot of the uh, um, styles kind of originated. A lot of the blueprints come from uh, a lot of his work. And we're going to be talking about sort of an old-fashioned gothic horror tale, Black Sunday. And then later, um, a more sort of uh, gory splatter flick, Bay of Blood, also known as Twitch of the Death Nerve. Uh, also known, uh, known as, I think... Oh, God, because... I, I actually made a list. Okay, good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's got how many titles? What am I... Because uh, Joe you want Don... Me to say them now or wait uh, till we get Yeah, to... go ahead. Say them now. All right, we got Bay of Blood, a.k.a. Twitch of the Death Nerve, a.k.a. Bloodbath, a.k.a. Ecology of a Crime, a.k.a. Chain Reaction, a.k.a. The Bloodlust, The Devils, a.k.a. The Stench of Flesh, a.k.a. The Last House on the Left Part 2, a.k.a. Thus Do We Live to Be Evil, and the shooting script said, uh, that will teach them to be bad. Yes! Wow. That, that, la- that last one is my favorite. Yeah. Uh, Joe Dante's Trailers from Hell, Edgar Wright, did a great uh, did a great video for the uh, trailer for this. And that was where I heard about um, That Will Teach Them to Be Bad, which is one of my favorite uh, titles ever. Yes. Um, and a good synopsis of pretty much any slasher movie, really. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> Uh, do we have any business to take care of? Um, nothing specifically. Uh, I guess at the top of the show, it'd be good to just sort of... I mean, we, we usually do this at the end of the show, but just in case there are people who might want to duck out early when they know that the show is wrapping up, I think it's good to just throw out our email because uh, it, we've been getting a few emails here and there, but it'd be nice to get some more and maybe some voicemails as well. Uh, just send them, uh, send us your thoughts, as, uh, as always, especially when we want to get some more suggestions in the future and... Um, yeah, just send them at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we, we do have something later that we'll bring up that's been very cool of somebody to contribute a little bit our way. Very cool and more than a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but it was, it's great nonetheless. Yeah. Surprising. Surprising, yeah. to say the least. But we'll get to that. It's a, it's a tease. Yeah. yeah we're teasing that's what you it. call it in the radio business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's also what you call it in stag films. Um, sure. If uh, there's nothing else, why don't we get I don't to? Think so. No. Yeah. I'm what good. we watched this week? Why don't we? Right. What? 
did we watch this week? What did we watch? What movies we watch? What's the movie? What did we watch? What movies we watch? What's the movie? What did we watch? What movies we watch? The movies we watch. The movies we watch. Um, Gabe, uh, what have you seen recently? Okay, well, I I can't actually make up my mind because I watched uh, first. I had to review uh, the re-release Blu-ray of uh, Gone, the original Gone in sixty seconds. But then yesterday I had uh, three film uh, uh, Van Damathon. Oh, that's right. With with uh, if I'm not mistaken, with Evan Sathoff. Uh... Yes, he made Brussels sprouts. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um... Which, but I, which, honestly, I think I'd rather talk about Gone in 60 Seconds, but I could talk about it either. I, which, we actually we brought this up in the last episode because uh, Damon is a big defender of, I believe, Knock Off. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I have actually not seen any Jean-Claude Van Damme movies I'm a huge fan all. of Hard Target myself. That's one of the ones we watched. Cool. <laughs> um, so I, I would have nothing to contribute. Um, but uh, if you think... I've, but I haven't seen the Gone Six, original Gone in sixty seconds either. Neither have I. Oh, I'll talk about that one because I, because then I work for a DVD site and I have a DVD complaint here. So, All right. um, well, anyway, I, I'm sure you guys have probably seen the remake with Nicolas Cage. I have, and I don't remember too much about it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, it was it was not very good, forgettable, um, and I, I think it came out in like 2000, so it was a really big deal when it first came out, but mm-hmm. um. The the original one was about as independent as a movie can get. The uh, director H. B. Haleki or Haleki, I'm not sure which is the right pronunciation. Um, he directed, wrote, starred in, acted as stunt driver, um, and uh, I think he even edited it. And his own cars were the ones that were crashed throughout the movie. Like he had a big collection of cars, <laughs> and so. <laughs> It's it's really just a build up, a very very simple build up to uh, a forty minute car chase that actually goes on so long it gets a little boring. I have to say, uh, hmm. <laughs> but the so the idea is that these guys, it's like the the Jerry Bruckheimer movie where guys have to steal, um, I can't remember forty cars or something in one day, and so the first half of the film is just them stealing these cars, and it's shot kind of kind of in that 70s style where uh, everything's just sort of cutting quickly and we don't really get to know anybody and they all have blue-collar dialogue. and um, They throw in a couple surprises, like one guy tries to uh, steal a car that has a tiger in it for some reason. <laughs> and so that's just like a throwaway scene where a guy's like, well, look at that, there's a tiger. And then I think they even played some silly noise on the soundtrack when he saw the tiger. Um, yeah, something like that. Almost, maybe that might even been it. Uh, and so they... Uh, they build up to this car chase that then just never stops, and and like it just has no uh, what's the it has no dynamic range to the chase. It, it there's really nothing like at stake. He doesn't have to get anywhere at a certain amount of time. He just has to get away from the cops, and so it's kind of like the car chase from Blues Brothers minus uh-huh. the comedy. Um. Yeah, even though I, I even think the Blues Brothers chase goes on too long. Exactly. And so it's like that, where it's just massive, massive stuff. And the only interesting thing about it, really, rather than the fact that it's so independent, is that he actually takes time to cut away and show how uh, much this uh, trek across town 
has hurt people, like physically. Like I don't think I've ever seen that in a car chase movie. Like the collateral uh, damage? Yeah, it actually shows people getting like people crying and getting put put into ambulances <laughs> and, and like a person who's clearly dead hanging out of their car. And then they cut back to this guy who's played by the director who's supposed to be our hero still. Hmm. Uh, and we're still it and we're still rooting for him and it was very bizarre. Is it now is that like a tone deaf choice or was he trying to make some kind of point? Or was he trying to be I, subversive? I think he was trying to be subversive, but it's really hard to tell with this particular movie. And so, anyway, the Blu-ray has been remastered, and the remaster job is, uh, the video is pretty good. They uh, they went way too dark on the blacks, so you can't see what's happening at all in some of the night scenes, but otherwise it's pretty good. The problem is, and I, I didn't know this because I'm not really a fan of the movie, I'd seen it when the original came out on DVD, and I kind of forgot what happened. And so I'm watching the movie, and I'm noticing that the music feels like it's out of an 80s Michael Mann movie, only like the Muzak version of the music from a Michael Mann movie. And I'm thinking this just doesn't fit with this 1974 movie. And so while I was watching it, I looked it up, and apparently this is a big bone of contention with the fans, where when it was put on DVD, like in 2000, when the remake came out, they gave it to this, you know, I don't know what you call them, some sort of remastering house, who took the original audio tracks with Romano, and threw away everything but the uh, dialogue. <laughs> everything. So, so all the sp- sound effects, which sound spectacular and new, but don't fit the film at all, are like these big, booming things that they. I'm sure they got out of other movies or out of some sort of, di- you know, digital library or something. And then the music is this just utterly generic, nonstop, like wall of really cheesy 80s sounding guitar rock <laughs> weird and, that is weird and there's no option to listen to the other track so and the guy's dead the guy died making gone in 60 seconds too he died in a crash <laughs> making the movie so wow. i i number one this sounds sort of like what i i've like a lot of people will do with say re-releases of night of the living dead where they're just like fuck it we'll colorize it we'll add yes. in stuff mm-hmm. we'll just well it's just well we uh, was was this such an independent movie that there was no one to sort of speak up on his behalf? No, or? Here's, here's the thing. It's his widow that is in charge. His widow and the producer, I think the producer, are the ones in charge of it. Oh, it's a Courtney Love situation where all it's the fans of the guy. Like. <laughs> That's what it feels like. And I don't know because I'm, I'm not in the fan base. You know, I figure you know, if this was like Evil Dead or Night of the Living Dead, I feel like if something like this happened, I would know. But to me, this was all new. So I actually spent a lot of the movie on the Wikipedia and the the IMDb and all the DVD compare sites, like looking at this. He stuff. sounds like a fascinating guy. Uh, I mean, this the way you sort of set up, like how we made the film. It sounds like it's he's not a filmmaker who happened to make a car chase movie. He was a, a guy who he had a, his lifelong passion was to these car chase with exactly. cars. And, exactly, so, and he made a couple more. I haven't seen any of them. Uh, the Junk Man. Uh, I honestly can't remember the names of the other ones. And they have on the D- that's one of the best special features on here is they have just the car chase scenes from those other movies, so you don't have to hmm. bother with the rest of the movie apparently, uh, that's which a- is kind of for the better honestly. Yeah, that's that kind sounds, of cool. That's really fascinating. Now, is there any home video release that has the original mono tracks? Apparently, the ori- the first first release that came out way back when has the original tracks, which I'm sure is way out of print. I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I would have to go find a copy, and I, I don't know. It was described as being much more country music, like 
which makes sense because that was what you played during car chases before. You know, you'd either played bullet music, no music, or you played like Dukes of Hazard music. Right. Because <laughs> there's no instrument that you can play faster than a banjo. Banjo, yeah. Right, exactly. So, so, it'd be like the Cannonball Run movies. Right. <laughs> yeah. Smoking the Bandit, all those. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'm trying to, like, I'm trying to imagine, uh, like, someone, someone else is, like, fiercely, like, someone like Russ Meyer, if someone, if, <laughs> I mean, his widow is doing the opposite. His, uh, Russ Meyer's, the, the widow is sort of making it very hard for any releases to get on right. a home video. Um, from what I understand, this is what actually led to me importing my very first, uh, uh, out of region <laughs> DVD from the UK was I, I recently Does it play on your Blu-ray player? No, no, it, it plays on my computer though. The oh, PAL cool. the their PAL yeah, DVDs. The PAL is the problem. Oh, yeah. okay. But they play on my DVD play or on my uh, laptop, so I watch them that way. So I got a big box set uh, from England that way. But yeah, I did a bunch of sort of research and I sort of discovered that there's been a lot of sort of sort of blocking. But if she instead released Russ Meyer's movies but then took out well, I guess I guess it's not quite the same because all of the um, much of the older ones, the audio is all dubbed in, is all post production anyway. But and that's what I assumed. I assumed it was all post production, but I mean, again, and I'm going by a Wikipedia page, so who knows if it's true? But it sounded like they actually recorded the sound of the real car crashes, and that it was just too tinny for these guys. <clears throat> the worst part is on the special features, which are carried over from the old DVD. The guy who did the sound actually says, I'm sure some fans will be upset about it missing, but you know what? They can just deal with it. <laughs> and I, that's shocking to me. That's such a, like, like even George Lucas doesn't say that. He, right. he, just, sort of, he just sort of dodges the question. Yeah, yeah. don't, don't like, you, you have control over what gets put on your special yeah. features. Yeah, exactly. Don't put that part in there. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, crazy. It was bizarre. It was, it was weird. Because um, that's what I watched. <laughs> he sounds like he sounds like the kind of person that eventually some kind of Ed Wood biopic would be written about him, where he died making Gone in sixty seconds too. Like yeah, poor guy. Yeah, and he well, he seemed and all the behind the scenes features. He I mean he's wearing a cowboy hat. He seems like you know kind of post hippie guy. Like he was a hippie hmm. and he's kind of getting over it. Seems like a nice guy. I'm sure he's interesting. Yeah. So uh, the Blu-ray. Well, I guess I mean if you want to watch the movie, it's. Probably. It's the only way, and it does look better than the DVD. Yeah, that much is true. So, that's a, I didn't know that about. I thought I figured Gone sixty seconds was just another imita- like Italian job. Uh, you know, um, no, it it actually follows the plot line pretty closely. What what little there is, I mean, there's almost no plot. That's kind of the point, I guess. Yeah, I've never seen the original. That's really interesting. Yeah, um, Jim, um, I'm kind of torn. I mean. I could talk a little... I mean, I'll briefly talk about Argo. I feel like everybody's praising Argo, and they should. It's a very, very good movie. I've just heard about it on a, a, a lot of podcasts, and I did get a chance to check it out, and I did enjoy it very, very much. Um, I don't know if it's the four-star best picture masterpiece that everybody's saying, just because I feel like it's nothing we haven't seen before. Uh, but I think Ben Affleck did a fantastic job putting it together, and it does have a... 70s quality to it and the editing is excellent um but i i I figured it'd be more interesting to talk about um something i've been embarking on recently and i'm trying to going back to finding movies i've seen once when uh i was younger and have a very uh um 
sort of limited memory on and just kind of trying to see if I can track them down. Most of them are kind of out of print and hard to find, but uh, I managed to find on Amazon Instant Video this movie called Dead of Winter. And uh, I guess this is one of the few things I have in common with my mom. I kind of like schlocky thrillers from the 80s that are just kind of over the top and ridiculous. They're very De Palma-esque in that way. Like, the the plot twists are are over the top. Sort of like domestic thrillers where... yeah. Cuckolded husbands no, take revenge, or some, like what? Somewhat, yeah. There's there's a little bit of that sometimes. Oh, it's Arthur Penn. Yeah, that's the one I was going to bring up. Oh, I was going to. Sorry, yeah, I, no, I was I was going to build up to that. But sorry, Arthur sorry. Penn directed this. Director of Bonnie and Clyde, um, and it's just this weird. It, it's it's almost like if De Palma did Misery, only without sort of the stylistic camera work that De Palma is known for. Uh, just a lot of the camera trickery isn't here. It's very straightforward. It, it's really, it's a very simple plot. It's just this struggling actress played by Mary Steenburgen who gets uh, called into this audition and uh, the uh, casting agent is played by Roddy McDowell and he says, yo, you're perfect for this part. Um, you, we're going to um, drive off to the um, to this other uh, audition site and you're going to act on camera and do, you know do further work and see if the director likes you um so she the, he drives her he says you're going to come with me to, to um, this house and we're going to meet the producer and blah 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 and of course there's this big snowstorm and they get trapped at the producer's house and uh there's a lot more to uh their justification their reasoning for keeping her at this house there's this, and of course, there's the Vertigo Hitchcock element of um, once the uh, uh, producer, who is the owner of this giant house that she's staying at, he goes, "You, you look just like my wife." Um, you can <laughs> kind of see where this is going, but there are twists, and they are kind of ludicrous. But it's really fun, and the acting is really what what sells it. Um, Mary Steenburgen is excellent, and Roddy McDowell is especially great. Uh, but I just realized, like, the, sort of in the in the in the late '80s, there was this onslaught of these kinds of movies where it really was all about uh, just how you know we want to pay homage to Hitchcock, and just even if it's an exercise in silliness, as long as the actors are there and the claustrophobic... I'm just really into claustrophobic settings. The idea of somebody being trapped and not being able to leave again, the misery element is here. And that's sort of enough to create suspense and tension of the fact that she is, you know, caught in this predicament. And, you know, obviously the phone lines are down. I mean, the, the, the tropes you've come to expect and love in these movies are all here. Um, but there is something else. You know, there's a blackmail element. There is something later in the film that's kind of a cool, unexpected turn. And uh, I don't know. I, I kind of dug it. Although, again, you have to suspend disbelief, and a major plot point hinges on the fact that a gas station gives away goldfish for every uh, $10 purchase. <laughs> That's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> I don't know any gas stations on the highway are like, here's some free goldfish for with every $10 purchase. That sounds like a detail that would be in a Rob Zombie movie, though. <laughs> yeah, I guess it could be. Only, sure. they, only it wouldn't go anywhere in a Rob Zombie movie. No, it, would, yeah. it definitely wouldn't. <laughs> 
And she's like, I don't want guy, no fucking goldfish. <laughs> yeah, fucking goldfish. It's going to yeah, fucking he, die on me. Yeah, but it's just, it, it's definitely unexpected coming from, you know, uh, an old school uh, classier director like Arthur Penn to sort of. What did Arthur Penn do? I, he did Arthur something. What was that film he did? Not, not Arthur. Arthur. Mickey. Mickey uh, One? Mickey One. There yeah. we go. Yeah, I, movies that ended. He numbers. did Miracle Worker and, uh, of course, Bonnie and Clyde. And um, then, uh, Little Big Man is probably his best oh, movie, I think. Oh yeah, Little Big Man. That's right. And uh, a movie I've, I've been meaning to see just because it's another Gene Hackman movie, uh, Night Moves. I've been meaning to see that, and I think his last what, is his last movie, uh, Penn and Teller Get Killed. I think that was his last movie. Uh, no, it's just it's 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 really um, those kinds of movies from that era really interests me for some reason. I think, you know, sometimes uh, just the the ridiculousness of them normally, and maybe it is just me being forgiving about it in the same way I am with De Palma, if if there are just enough, uh, you know, plot twists that can keep me interested, if it's compelling enough, and if it's at least the acting is there. Especially, you know, you got a guy like, like Roddy it, McDowell. Is you it like really heightened, like a like a De Palma yeah. movie? Yeah, I mean, at least in terms of you know, well, the score is raised, and you, there are things uh, that you come to expect, other than just sort of like split screens and the usual things you right. come from, you know, like a Hitchcock. But it's more like the plot you would come to expect in a De Palma or Hitchcock world, but just not the the execution and camera work. Now, the thing is, like, there are certain directors, like a William Friedkin, who did, like, just tons of just shit in the, like, <laughs> 80s and early 90s and stuff, where it's just, you could tell William Friedkin just wanted to keep working. Uh, yeah, where I don't just think, like B-movie exploitation. Yeah, like, he'll stuff. just, he'll, he just took jobs. Yeah. Um, and that's why there's a lot of forgettable Friedkin movies, despite the fact that he's a really, you know, great director when mm-hmm. he when he tries. Um, Arthur Penn, he didn't, like, he wasn't that prolific, was he? Like, not especially. Hold on, I'm looking at his page, and yeah, he doesn't have a lot. So, like, if he made this, I mean, I guess... There must have been something in Penn and Teller kill themselves as well, but I mean, like, yeah. like oh, it was a, it was a, apparently this is a loose remake of a an hour long movie called My Name Is Julia Ross, which is a um, a gothic fiction film noir. That uh, oh, it's interesting. It's it's very similar in in uh, in, in plot. Well, is there like some? I, I guess my question is like. What do you think would attract an Arthur Penn to this? Do you think it was just a job, or can you tell? Like, he was he. I still I think that he might have just wanted to pay homage to Hitchcock. I think that yeah, directors reach a certain age and they want to make a Hitchcock movie. <laughs> yeah, I think it's that simple. I mean, why not try and shoot for a mainstream thriller? And if they're sort of popular around that time, yeah, you know, I th- I wouldn't say it's like a, his passion project or anything. And I don't think it's a lazy, wor- you know, a, a lazy entry in his in his in his filmography or anything. I don't think it's anything substantial. I'm not saying everybody should rush out and yeah. track it down, but in terms of like, you know, you got a couple hours to kill, and I think it's fun and it's worth seeing just for the acting and the twists. I that would be make an interesting bonus episode where we look at what directors like just decided, fuck it, I want to do a Hitchcock movie. Yeah, <laughs> like. Yeah, it's a pretty long list. I love that statement. Ever at a certain age, every director wants to make a Hitchcock movie. Yeah, um, yeah, it's okay. That's it's, it. it's it's cool. No, I'm just like again, I'm trying to find these movies that I have just I've yeah. probably seen bits and pieces of, or I saw only once when I was a kid, and 
like maybe I was watching well, at the same time my mom and dad were watching you know, it. To and, sort of connect this with something Gabe said, like so one thing I've you know I definitely learned about you, Jim, is that you have a very strong connection to the video store. Yeah. Like, you went to the video store a lot as a kid, and you watched a lot of different movies that have never made it on DVD, mm-hmm. and you have a lot of fond memories and a lot of, uh, like, that That formed a significant part <laughs> of sort of you becoming yeah. a fan of film. Remember video box art, <laughs> yeah. especially. Oh, man. I have two books on the subject. Oh, really? I, yeah. They're great. That's cool. I love, see, I, I, I grew up, I've been, I've been obsessing about this fact recently. I grew up in a household with, where my parents didn't care about art at all. They didn't, they list, they had, they owned six albums and they were the same six albums for when they were in high school. Um, and they, like, my mom would say her favorite movie is Sound of Music, but she hasn't seen it since she was 12. Like, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, well, now you're making up for lost time. <laughs> right. Well, I, I'm making up for lost time, but I, I, I feel, I feel like, uh, sort of a sense of, of loss <laughs> that I never had. Uh, that kind of childhood watching all these movies and I can't go back now and just watch all of these sort of bad horror movies that were released on VHS and like well you can find them I could find them but I mean out of the context of this is going to be my Friday night and Mm -hmm. I convince mom and I'm really excited because this is the box art and everything like (laughs) I'm really excited to find out what like uh, like the Linda Blair movie Grotesque has the most amazing box it does. art. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. I, that was a that was a that was a movie I bought used uh, for fifty cents from a local video store before it went out of business. And that was and it's that sort of thing where you, you get excited and you're like, what is this? What is going to happen? And, yeah. Um, That's exactly what happened with me and Lady in White when I saw that box art. And I told you about that movie uh, last night. Yeah. I think that's you're going to love that movie. It's incredibly old-fashioned, and that's one of those movies I try to recommend to people, especially around Halloween. It's very... Um, again, it's it's one of those old-fashioned sort of gothic horror movies, but it's a you know a ghost story, and it's... You know, it's... It, all the whole family can watch it. It's really simple and... Well done and told in the style of something like The Haunting, but not in black and white. And uh, it stars Lucas Haas. But again, I don't know if it's a movie that's... Re- it was available on DVD for a while. Do you know about that one, Gabe? Have you seen Lady in no, White? I have not. Oh, actually. man. I think I just think that people would eat that up. And I think you would have a good time with that, too, Patrick. I'll have to ch- I mean, again, my, uh, my, both my free time and my list of movies I need to see. True. Uh, they, work at, they work at odds. So it's, it's, it's hard. But, uh, it is. It's, been, it's become harder for the both of us, to um, be honest. Oh, I recognize the box art. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at it now. I have not seen it, though. But I rec- see, that's the thing. I recognize box art before oh, I yeah. recognize actual movies it's very strange. that was probably where my first obsession with horror movies came from it wasn't from watching any horror movies because i didn't watch any horror movies until i was in high school mm-hmm. i didn't see a single horror i think i saw leprechaun 3 on tv <laughs> i think that was the full extent of it but well there is good news though in andersonville there is a video store that you can actually get a video card for and just browse through yeah. like you normally would no I'm, that's we, really good. i mean we live in the city so we have an opportunity to see movies you know that not yeah. everyone gets to see but uh, but one thing that did – what I was going to say is one thing that did make me sort of a horror fan is that every time my mom went to the grocery store, our grocery store had a video store connected to it. Right. And I would just sit in the whore aisle because those had the best boxes. Something like you said just, whore aisle. The whore aisle. You know, where yeah. the prostitutes, the <laughs> right. sex workers, as yeah. have you. Um, they just hand out copies of oh, Halloween man. and Let, me, let me talk about their box art. <laughs> God, that was a bad joke. Move on. Um, no, but I would just sit and I'd stare at Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, the back of it, and there'd be the – 
the one screen cap of the, oh, of the yeah. girl stuck in the fridge with her face all bloated. Mm-hmm. And I would just, like, I would try to wrap my head around what kind of movie could have a scene like that. And, yes. like, it just set my imagination going. And it wasn't until way later that I watched it and I go, oh, a lot of these movies aren't as great as they <laughs> as, as I made them out to be in my mind. And, but, and for me, seeing the, bo- the, uh, you know, the back of the box for Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Yeah. And seeing Freddy as the snake, that totally fucked with me as a kid. Well, I was the same way as Patrick, though. I I wasn't allowed to watch anything over a PG, and I was kind of a nervous kid, so I actually avoided horror movies. Um, Mm. I think the first one I ever saw was Troll, which is barely a horror movie. Um, And then when I got into high school, then I got into them. But I still did the exact same thing, where I would like dare myself to look at the box art. Yeah, there's some some movies that are t- not good movies. Like there's one called Mutant Hunt, and I remember it saying "too gory for the silver screen." And I finally found a copy of Mutant Hunt, and it's not gory at all, and it's really cheap. Uh, I w- I've, I've, I've been sort of uh, I've been um, sort of mourning the loss of that kind of fear um, because right. I, I saw I saw the Beyond recently, which I'll get to very very quickly. Are very very shortly, but I saw the Beyond recently, and there were tarantulas pulling out someone's eyeballs, and it didn't gross me out at all. And I was like, "Wow!" Like there was a time, like not two three years ago, where I would be really sickened by this. Um, and I was and now I, you're desensitized. And because well, yeah, it's that, and it's just also there's not a lot of sort of boundaries to conquer unless I go into the uh, guinea pig. <laughs> or I'm I'm actually writing something for you about that right now. Awesome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I've been I've been thinking about that because also I've been listening. It's a Halloween, so I've been listening to a lot of uh, sort of spooky music stuff. And I remember Rob Zombie's Hellbilly Deluxe just scared the shit out of me <laughs> when a when a friend brought it over on a sleepover. Yeah, and I was just like, oh god, because I thought he was a devil worshiper, and I thought the devil was real. And like, no, I felt that way about Portrait of American Family when I first heard it. I mean, I was actually a teenager though, but I was still freaked out by yeah. Marilyn Manson. But seeing him live for the first time was really terrifying. I saw him open for Nine Inch Nails in Hole. There's no music that can scare me. Like, I, I, mm. I, th- I had that thought recently because I was trying to look up metal and I was trying to look up, like, the heaviest metal I could. And, like, I just made a realization, like, oh, yeah, there's no way any of this music can frighten me. Because hmm. it's just, that's... Like, there are still movies that freak me out, um, you know. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Well, I'm, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, uh, but... There's the craft of filmmaking can freak me out even well, if yeah. I know it's not real or whatever. But there's no music that can, I don't think, scare me anymore. Anyway, speaking of horror movies, um, yes, I, I really want to get into this. This is going to be fun. This is going to be our first lightning round because um, every year the Music Box had what was called the Music Box Massacre, and it was a 24-hour uh, horror film festival. I've talked about it on the past. Um, and so you stay in the theater from noon Saturday to noon Sunday, and you watch movies on the big screen. You watch old trailers. You watch short films. It's their uh, Q and A's. It's really the best because uh, you know it's it's cheaper than going to a horror convention, and you get to do the thing you don't get to do at horror conventions, which is watch a lot of horror movies. Yeah, and there are no distractions around you at all, and you get to just sit and enjoy. Oh, it's it for great! A long and you get with a really receptive audience. It's wonderful. Yeah. Well, this year. Um, the people who previously ran the Music Box Massacre splintered from the Music Box. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were actually two 24-hour horror film festivals in Chicago. There was the Music Box of Horrors. They changed the name because I assumed, because they didn't want association with the shooting at Aurora. You don't want to, oh, yeah. you, well, welcome to our theater, here's a massacre. Like so. 
Um, and then the next, so that was last weekend. And then just this weekend at the Portage Theater on the uh, west side, there was The Massacre, um, which is the people who used to run it. So I actually went to two of these and I, I didn't, I wasn't able to make, uh, sit through the whole thing, but I was able to see 19 horror movies, 19, 19 horror movies since we last recorded. Um, so I thought it would be fun if we did a lightning round where I get 40 seconds uh, to talk with you guys about each one. Um, Jim is going to be keeping track of the time, mm-hmm. and he has a little chime. Uh, Jim, would you ring the chime? I sure can. There we go. <laughs> That's the sound of our buzzer. Uh, wow. Post. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I could do, do it louder. That shit wouldn't fly in jeopardy. Um, and uh, so uh, let's get into the lightning round. Uh, Jim, are you ready? I am ready. Let me know when I can begin. Go. Uh, the first movie I saw in the first massacre was uh, The Gollum, which was a silent, you know, uh, Germ- German horror film. It's not really much of a horror film because the monster just looks like a dime, like a cigar store Indian, and he's mostly played for laughs. But I do want to ask you, uh, both you guys, what is your favorite silent horror movie? Hmm. Uh, Nosferatu, probably, which is a boring answer, but... I would agree with that, to be honest, too. Yeah? Yeah. Um, I probably would have said that, but then I saw uh, Waxworks last year at mm. the Massacre, and that was so much... It's an anthology horror film, and the the last scene takes place in... Uh, the last story takes place in Arabia, and a German expressionist interpretation of, of, uh, of the Middle East is, like, such an amazing sight, and the sets were incredible, and... Um, oh, that's it. Oh, All right. Yeah, the next one we watched was... Are you ready, Jim? Yes. Okay, Mark of the Vampire, which is uh, Todd Browning and Bela Lugosi trying to sort of replicate uh, Dracula for MGM. Uh, but it has the craziest, stupidest twist. Um, actually, it probably a precursor for the crazy twist, the infamous twist of, it, of the slasher film April Fool's Day. Oh, no. Which is all of the vampirism, all of the vampires, all of the sightings and everything were actually an elaborate ruse to get someone to confess that he killed someone and made it look like a vampire killed them. Um, it's not a good movie. Uh, I don't think Todd Browning is a very good director. I think Freaks is great. but Freaks is great. Um, none of his other films I've really been a fan of. Uh, and I'm not a fan of Bela Lugosi. Uh, Gabe, are you a fan of Bela Lugosi? You know, watching all the Universal Horrors again, I kind of fell in love with Bela Lugosi, but I totally agree that Browning's not a very impressive director. Oh, that's okay. That's oh. it. Um, yeah. Speaking of Universal Horror, though, the next one I got to watch was The Invisible Man, which was amazing. It's probably my favorite Universal Horror movie um, now because it, it does something I would have never expected, which is one of the smartest script decisions ever, which is it cuts out... Everything about him experimenting and him building the concoction and him, no, these are what I want to do. And, no and then, oh, no, there was an accident. Now I'm in, in, invisible. It starts with him being invisible um, through very efficient uh, sort of um, uh, very efficient uh, exposition. Uh, you get what happened. But most of the movie is just him being a total bastard and just being horrible and like I was, I was so shocked at how dark it went and how gleefully horrible he was, and he was just knocking over baby carriages and causing train derailments and murdering people. And oh man, okay. Uh, the next one is Doctor Terror's House of Horrors, and that's an <laughs> anthology, uh, an English anthology uh, horror film, and it's one of the silliest movies I've ever seen. I I don't know if it came from the same company who did Tales from the Crypt and Beyond the Grave and all those, but uh, uh, it has Christopher oh, Lee. 
it has Peter Cushing. It was a Technicolor. Yeah. It had oh, yeah. it had a Technicolor print, which was exciting because I think the movie is not available on home release. Uh, not anything other than pan and scan. Um, but the stories are so silly, and they're. But what's crazy is they're really silly. But the direction is so boring that it makes it. It simultaneously it makes it funnier, but it also makes it less interesting. So the fact that every like they're treating this killer plant movie, which is like it's the the lamest looking killer plant, and everyone's acting stupid, but because they treat it so seriously, it just gets really funny. <laughs> so oh my god, okay, uh, Squirm, I love Squirm, oh, tons yeah. of worms. How can you argue with tons of tons of worms, no, Jim? Jim, no, you don't no, like? No, I'm not gonna. No, the no? ending is honestly gross. Like it really upsets me watching people soak into that many worms. Oh, no, no I, maggots, no worms, no bugs. Yeah, Jim. I, yeah, that's true. We watched, and we, you could tell they're fake too. Um, parts of them, some of them are. The, yeah, a lot of it's pasta, and then the ones on the top are real. <laughs> but on the yeah, on the wide shots, you can tell there's a lot of fake. But it is yeah, it's super gross, and it was great seeing it with an audience and everyone freaking out. Um, and I the first time I realized. Uh, it's kind of like a Stephen King movie with all. It has all of the sort of the. Uh, okay. It has uh, sort of the trappings of a Stephen King movie with the small town and all the the uh, the, the sort of terminology and the and the slang and this sheriff who hates outsiders and one of the sister the sister of the the lead actress she puts on a Maine like an accent from Maine for some reason even though the movie takes place in Georgia and oh, okay uh next is satan's little helper which is also by jeff lieberman i believe was the director of Squirm. yeah i was just gonna say lieberman um, director of remote control yeah <laughs> jim was really jim wanted me to tell lieberman that he loved remote control but that was just too many layers removed i'd never even seen remote control so i'm not going to tell him that satan's little helpers direct a video movie about satan um putting on a satan halloween costume and then telling a little kid that they should go play halloween games but it just it's them murdering people um, it's just a direct-to-video movie. It's real bad. Have you seen this, Jim? Uh, this, Gabe? Mm-mm, no. 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 It's, I, it's, I, I saw it when I worked at Blockbuster, and it came out. It's all right. Uh, what were you going to ask, Jim? Uh, Gabe? I was just going to say that Just Before Dawn is the movie of his that I am a huge fan of. What one's that about? That one's a slasher movie with a cool twist and the best final girl of like any slasher movie ever. Oh yeah! What? Oh, too bad. Never gonna find All right. out. All right. Next was <laughs> next was Howling Two, the sequel to the Howling, aka Howling Two. Your sister is a werewolf. A phrase which is said three times within a ten minute span in the movie, and then never said it again. So great, so crazy. The editing. It really. Keep, it keeps cutting back and forth. And by the way, we should bring out. Uh, was it Brian Pete? Yeah. Brian Pete, a listener. He is giving. He. He's off, he's donating a two dollars and fifty cents to the uh, um, to our podcast for every howling movie we talk about or write about. Um, because, and Hellraiser. Oh, and Hellraiser. Yeah, because he was like obsessed with us watching those two series. Yeah, very it was weird. Very strange. So we want to thank him for that. He did give us two fifty, even though we insisted he shouldn't. Um, but that goes that will go to pay Gabe among uh, our right. server costs. So uh, you know we can't complain. But uh, no, and it has the great end credit sequence in which uh, Barbara, whoever. The, the lead werewolf woman, she rips off her shirt and then it keeps cutting back to that clip like 26 times during the end credits. Okay. The next, last one I saw of that fest was The Beyond, which is the first Italian horror movie where everything that makes it quintessential Italian horror I loved and everything mm. that all the, we talked about more of this on the Argento episode, but all the things that bug me about Italian horror weren't really present. Um, 
I think it sort of coalesces. It feels like a singular thing. There's a lot of recurring symbolism and stuff. Um, it's not a mystery. Like, there is sort of, they're trying to figure out what's going on, of course, but it's not about someone interviewing people. And, like, you don't just get the exposition from people talking to each other in rooms and stuff. Uh, it, it's really nightmarish. It's really horrifying. And I think, and I really love the ending instead of, um, I, th- I feel like so many Italian horror movies, they run out of steam and then they just do a freeze frame on the climax of the ending or they do a freeze frame about like five minutes after the climax. This one, it ends with something that's actually kind of suggestive and actually kind of, okay. So then the next, uh, this is the next week. Uh, we started with Unshin Andalou, the uh, Louise Bunel uh, silent film. Slicing up eyeballs. Ho, 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 ho. And uh, I got to see it with a live organist, which was great, yeah. which was very helpful as far as making it more intense because I remember watching it on VHS when I was in college and not getting it. Um, and I, I still don't get it, but Same. it, <laughs> I'm just going to do one words. Yeah. I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not really well versed in experimental film. I really love the experimental films. I like, I really love Kenneth Anger. Uh, a lot of what Kenneth Anger did, uh, Scorpio rising and, uh, pleasure dome or I can't remember the full title of that one, but, uh, I'm just, I, I really don't know how to read them. Um, so a lot of experimental films, they just I just sort of engage them on a moment-to-moment basis, and then that's done. Um, I saw The Black Cat with Bill Lugosi and Boris Karloff. I'm not a fan. Uh, have you seen this, Gabe? See, I haven't seen it in so long, and I remember really liking it, and I saw something on your Facebook about it, and so now I'm like, is that the one where he skins him? Uh, at the very end, yeah. That was, that was good. That scene really upset me. I, I mean, it, you don't see him skinning. You just hear him say, I'm going to skin you, and then you see long shots, and you, I don't think you even hear the knife or anything. Oh, but okay. uh, it was... I mean, it is suggestive, and you know, it it is a certain uh, something I've, t- I've talked about before. When you're watching old movies, there's a certain level of transgression that you don't expect. So when you see a movie from 1934, and someone is and someone skins someone else on screen, even if you don't actually see the skin coming off, it's a lot more disturbing than uh, if you say saw it in a Saw movie. Um, I, then I I sort of saw Curse of the Werewolf, the Hammer horror film by Terrence uh, Fisher. Uh, the problem uh, was that one of the uh, projectors broke um, oh. at that point. The fan, the fan belt came off. So after every reel, there was a 10-minute delay as they put the next reel on that same projector. Um, so it's a, a really good movie. I really like that movie. I, maybe I'd like it more. I wasn't really into it. I kind of like the way it sort of sets itself up as a fairy tale with the narration at the beginning. Um, I like Oliver Reed. I just... Uh, it it took a long time to get going, um, and I I'll admit I this uh, after I'd say the fifth reel change at this point we no one in the audience knew what was going on we just knew it kept stopping for ten minutes after every reel. Um, I just went outside so I so I maybe missed twenty minutes in the middle and then I caught the last ten. Um, so I, I can't say I saw it, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, Witchfinder General uh, was a movie I was really excited to, to see because I love Vincent Price and he did not disappoint. He is so horrible in this movie and he does a really cool thing where he doesn't like he doesn't uh, sort of revel in it he, it doesn't it's not campy uh, he, he the character he plays is a witch hunter so he's he's very pious the whole time even when he's doing you know un, undefen- indefensible things and one of the things that surprised me most about it was it's not really a horror movie it's more to me a western now me and Robert Reinecke we had a debate on my Facebook page about this um, Reinecke is a huge fan of British horror, uh, Hammer in particular, but uh, he was saying that it feels too British to be like a spaghetti western, but to me it's all about this sort of huge landscape and double crosses and this sort of brutal violence and 
it's all about it, there's no supernatural elements there's no real horror scenes where there's you don't know what's happening there's a build up of tension there's okay <laughs> uh, okay we saw the uh, me and Jim this is when Jim came in we saw the uh, short uh, Cronenberg film Under the Drain which oh, yeah. was one of the first uh, short films Cronenberg ever made. Jim, very, did disappo- you, very disappointing. Did you get it? Not really. No, 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 no. <laughs> It's two men in a bathtub and one man... Couldn't even decipher some of the dialogue because the music was overbearing it, too. Oh, yeah, the, the sort of plinky acoustic guitar. Yeah. But it's one man sort of talking about how there's something coming out of the drain to kill them, and the other guy's like, no, you're crazy. Just mm-hmm. go ahead, sit near it. And then at the end, uh, it ends up killing him, and I think, oh, it's a, something about sort of the, the logic of paranoia about how there is something horrible going to happen and yeah. people who are paranoid actually they have an advantage and but it, I didn't get why there were two men in a bathtub I didn't get yeah, why they were talking about a veterans hospital uh, it was very I didn't really wasn't a big fan of it but, neither was I and I love Cronenberg yeah okay uh, and then uh, I saw Spider Baby yeah. yeah holy shit fucking great I had no idea what Spider Baby was about before I saw it I knew that Lon Chaney Jr. was in it so I figured it was some kind of monster movie and really. it was more of a John Waters movie than anything. Uh, like a better than a John Waters movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like no. The, it's the like best Jack John Hill's, Waters movie that there Jack ever Jack Hill's was. take on Lolita or something. Yeah, and, and parts of it are like that, but then yeah. parts of it are just fucking weird. And mm-hmm. uh, Jack Hill was in attendance, and uh, when asked uh, where the ideas for Spider Baby came, he just pantomimed smoking a joint. <laughs> <laughs> and it does, it does kind of feel like that. It's the craziest fucking movie um, is it on? Is it readily available on DVD? Uh, you know, Gabe? it might be out of print because I think, I think the company that put it out, Dark Sky, is kind of not in great shape. But it is available. I have a copy. Okay, well, if you can see it on DVD, see it. It's. It, I promise you, it'll blow your mind. You will never expect it to go the place it goes. It has Sid Haig. I didn't recognize Sid Haig. I thought he was retarded. Okay. I agree. I agree. <laughs> anyway, uh, then we saw Return of the Living Dead, which is just the funniest, oh, of course, horror comedy. Yeah, um, nah. Reanimator's way funnier. I don't. I don't think Reanimator. I think Reanimator is more campy and sort. But I think as far as actual yeah. comedy goes, I kind of like them equally. Uh, I, I don't quote Return of the Living Dead. I quote Reanimator. I quote Return of the Living Dead. <laughs> it's a, mean, it's good. It's very very good. You yeah. mean the movies lied? And I love that. I love how Dan Bannon sets up yeah. the characters. I love like. The characters the opening, are, yeah, the pre-opening. Every scene. zombie movie in history needs to learn that the characters are what going to keep you mm-hmm. watching these people stuck in a house while arms come out, but you don't actually see a lot of zombie action. And you James need, and James Karen is Frank. His facial reactions and his screaming is hilarious oh, every single time. He he steals that movie every hilarious. time he screams and he just or he starts off so calm and assured, yeah. and then just when he just becomes a screaming mess later, it's so funny. Um, we saw Phantasm two. Which I think if you looked at the difference between Phantasm and Phantasm 2, it's sort of like – it's a pretty good illustration of what the 80s mm-hmm. were in oh, terms yeah. of horror Definitely. and what the 70s were in terms of horror. Because Phantasm yep. has kind of a personal vision and it's kind of eerie and nightmarish and it's got this strong thematic backbone of sort of understanding mortality and the childlike fear of death and everything. And Then Coscarelli saw Evil Dead 2. Yeah. <laughs> goes, I'll do that. And it's just fan service. It's just, yeah, yeah. here's our characters. They're totally badass. And Here's gonna, three balls. Yeah. There, you had one ball before. Now you got three. And now and all our, your favorite lines are going to be said again. And 
Uh, I mean, but you could see James Legros, patron saint of the Directors Club podcast. That's true. We like James Legros, and also it's just <laughs> it's just too well made not to work. Don Coscarelli yeah, is actually so a really good director. So yeah, the scene, I think it's the biggest budget he ever worked with. Probably, I wouldn't surprise me. But it, despite the fact that it's ill informed, uh, it works well. Uh, next one is Nightmare on Elm Street: Dream Warriors, which uh, I've seen a million times. So it, it almost felt a little uh, repetitive. It just it felt a little tedious watching it again. But I got. To <laughs> See on the big screen at least. Of course, I love. I it's my favorite. Of my the series again. You don't need a deep movie for a horror movie to be good, but if you just put a little bit of thematic weight behind characters, if all you need to do is just say, "Here are kids dealing with their problems," and that's what Freddy represents. Mm-hmm. Like none of those characters are deep. None of them are like super well observed or detailed. But just the fact that that effort is put in there, it makes the movie resonate so much more. Um, you have the amazing kill. Uh, where the with the marionette kid, which is oh, fucking yeah. gross as shit. <laughs> um, you have you I know, like all the kids. you have all sorts of great effects. Uh, I think uh, Frank Darabont uh, yeah, among he other, co-wrote it. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, from he he was sort of he was very instrumental in sort of the story of the script. So um, then, love it. Uh, that was when Jim left, but I got to see Houseu on the big screen. <laughs> Which I didn't even know that – I thought it was like a – I didn't know that it was a sort of a film that made the rounds at festivals. J- Gabe, I do want to ask you – if you, by the way, listeners, if you haven't heard of Haosu, you have to go ahead and watch Haosu. We can't describe it. Yeah, it's one of my um, favorites. But guaranteed you'll never see anything like it and you'll just be blown away by it. Now, I, I only first heard about it when it came on Criterion. Was it a notorious horror movie before that or was Criterion sort of its coming out party, Gabe? As far as I know, Criterion was the coming out party. I, after it came out and, and everybody was talking, I think it was Alex that was talking about having seen it. And it, uh, I thought it was a joke. I thought that it was one of these like grindhouse movies where it was like a new movie that was pretending to be an old movie based on hmm. what I saw. And then I finally saw it, and I was like, no, this is the real deal. And then I yeah. looked through all the books I have, and one of them had a very brief mention of it. Okay, and then I actually was not able to get through Prince of Darkness because I was too scared. Which is, <laughs> this is, now granted, I was also sleep deprived and super uncomfortable <laughs> in the theater seats, but this is the first time that me leaving a theater was influenced by the fact that I thought the film was too scary for me to stand. Um, partially it was because I knew I was about to pass out and it got to the real, the, probably the scariest part of the whole movie is the transmission dreams that everyone's yes. having of the black figure coming out of the church. Uh, like that is just creepy as hell. But I honestly, I, I'm excited to go back and watch this in its full entirety. Cause I, this might, I don't think it's definitely not Carpenter's best movie, but it might be one of my favorites mm-hmm. just cause that first like 30 or so minutes has the best buildup, and yeah. I think the scientist characters, the way they approach everything, it's such a great way to have characters that are interesting um, and fun to stay with, and uh, sort of. And I love the way that they're all like part of the theme of the film is that it's just that it, the devil is in literally the devil is in the details, and it's everyone not mm-hmm. seeing all these people not seeing what they actually have because they only one person's only translating the book, and one person's only talking about how old it is, and. They don't get to see it, and that's that was my that's uh, it. that was the past two weeks for me as Way far as go, watching Patrick, horror movies. Take a breath. lightning you round. You know what, Patrick? I've oh, I've had a pet theory that uh, the Beyond, the Sentinel, and uh, uh, Prince of Darkness could all take place in the same universe. That makes sense. Oh to wow! Me. Sentinel is actually another movie I only saw at the horror festival, but it was one of four movies that I saw when I was fading in and out of consciousness. So um, children shouldn't play with dead things. The Sentinel. Um, Pumpkinhead. 
I can't remember. There might have been one other. It might have just been those three. Those all melded. Was that last year? Was that yeah, that was last okay. year. Yeah, and I those all that. melded into the same movie for me. And if you ever get a chance to be sleep-deprived and to think that Pumpkinhead is somehow part of the Sentinel <laughs> and that and the, both those are somehow part of Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, I highly recommend it because it is freaky. Fuck. It is really scary. Um, We're going to be talking about Prince of Darkness in about uh, 11, 12 days. Yeah, that's right. Our next episode is going to be on John Carpenter, and I'm definitely going to want to talk about it then because, yes. holy shit, that is a tense opening. It sure is. <sighs> Way to go. Yeah. You know what? I think I have to do this maybe next episode. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to watch a bunch of horror movies myself. If I can find some time, I definitely won't watch 19, <laughs> but... Uh, I want a Patrick to give me the same challenge. I, can't, I, I couldn't do it as well as you did, Patrick. No way. Um, yes, yeah. Maybe. So, but that was that was a lot. I actually like that. So, uh, yeah, it was I don't I don't have time to watch enough movies to make more lightning rounds. But hopefully, in the future. Uh, well, for, I did watch. I did watch. I started out with Poltergeist too, so I can go there from there. Go. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. Um, but I think that covers what uh, we watched this week. We so. sure did. We watched a lot. So why don't we uh, get into the director of the episode, Mario Bava. Mario Bava. Mario Bava. He makes the films that are creepy and spooky. Yeah, they're creepy and spooky and lots of fun, just like Twitch of the Death Nerve. Yeah, like Twitch of the Death Nerve. First slasher film, first slasher film, first slasher film. Mario Bava. Mario Bava. Mario Bava. Mario Bava. Mario Bava was born in 1914 in San Remo, Italy. He was the son of Eugenio Bava, a sculptor and silent film cinematographer. Mario wanted to be a painter, but was unable to hack it, so he went into his father's business assisting cameramen before becoming one himself. He was a cinematographer of some note throughout the 40s and 50s before directing his first feature film, Black Sunday, in 1960. So Black Sunday is a uh, gothic horror film from 1960. Uh, involves a uh, witch who is uh, murdered in the something century. Uh, 1600s. <laughs> okay, right? yes, yeah, 1600s, so 17th century. Yeah. Um, only to return centuries later uh, when her corpse is disturbed by two traveling doctors. Um, her and uh, various other sort of people she has possessed slash uh, possessed her... Uh, I'm not some of the backstory of exactly who uh, the people who rise from their graves are isn't 100% clear, but uh, to me at least, um, they return and they sort of wreak havoc on the uh, ancestors of those who uh, wronged them. Um, now, this is Mario Bava's first uh, film as the lead director. Uh, Gabe, can you tell me a little bit sort of about? Uh, maybe Italian horror in around this time or about Mario Bava around this time or sort of yeah. s- set up the context of a film like this? Mm-hmm. Um, well, the context <clears throat> is that uh, there really weren't any Italian horror movies. And I honestly haven't gotten a good reason as to why. Some things I've read said that they were mostly banned. So they only really <laughs> got uh, horror movies around the time Hammer started making them. But then there's also, I mean, it, it's pretty clear that Bava is basically taking the uh, the reins that, you know, you start the chain with the German Expressionist silent films, 
like uh, Mornow and Ween and the guy who did uh, the, the Gollum. And then you have the Universal films, which are have sound and are still black and white mostly and take those things and kind of run with them. And then you have the 50s color era, which is Terrence Fisher and directors like that who did the Hammer movies. And around there, those were so popular. The, the stuff I've read said specifically uh, Horror Dracula was a big hit in Italy, uh, which was just released as Dracula here. Um, and so uh, around 1956, there's a movie called E Vampiri by Ricardo Freda. And that is what is often called Italy's first straight horror film. Um, even though a lot of the sword and sandal films have parts where people go to hell and scary stuff happens. Um, and Bava was cinematographer on E Vampiri and, and actually ended up finishing the film because Ricardo Freda, the director, just sort of left. Is that a, that's something I, I seem to be, it seems to be a recurring thing with when I'm, when I'm reading about Italian horror is that there are uncredited, uncredited directors. There are directors yep. finishing other directors' films. There mm-hmm. are people who are credited as directors, but really someone else is working. It was it is kind of a fluid working relationship back then? Or yeah, well, and I don't. There wasn't like an art tour theory in the, at the time. Like it wasn't until much later that Italian art house like Fellini and stuff. Well, I guess it wasn't that much later, but they started being art house directors. But up until then, it was really just more of a business, is the way I've always read it. And like, well, you could like, like someone like Sergio Leone, um, he has a bazillion uncredited things. Even after he was famous, he ended up doing a lot of uncredited direction on other Westerns. Huh. That's really, (laughs) I mean, it's, it's very different even, you know, even necessarily before auteur theory really took hold in America. I mean, you still have people like uh, John Ford and Howard, Howard Hawks, like sort of who you know they're they're they sort of see themselves as, as journeymen but they're they're definitely known you know and I, right um now black sunday is an incredible horror movie and i have to i have to assume that film that horror films being banned in italy uh must have led to sort of the old the old uh standby of the the, the people most repressed uh, will will end up you know doing the most crazy things because uh, I mean there is there's blood in I I'm not and I'm not super familiar with all of uh, Hammer Horror that's something we're definitely gonna have to get to next year as yeah. Terrence Fisher and that but like there's I don't think the violence in something like Horror of Dracula is as gruesome as just the the opening ten minutes of yeah. Black Sunday. Uh, which I watched with my girlfriend. She actually had to look away. You know, in 2012, she couldn't watch the uh, the scene with the mask being put on. Well, of course. Again, it's all plays in your mind, knowing like what that mask is made of and what it's doing. Uh, it's it was that. It, wh- <laughs> where do you think that well, sort of okay. obsession with violence and that sort of the more gruesome elements sort of came from? The Italian the the way it's explained by a lot of other filmmakers like Fulci and Argento in interviews is that Italians are they, their excuse is that Italians are uh, more uh, virile and passionate <laughs> people, <laughs> and so violence their violence is, just is more extreme. They're yeah. more extreme, yeah. But I mean, the the Hammer films were really bloody. They just usually weren't as it was usually just blood. It wasn't quite gore. I would say. I mean, they got gorier later, and then uh, in all, a lot of the. Uh, the um, 
Frankenstein films they made were really, really dark and had like implied rape and stuff like that. But I, I don't think that was until after well into the 60s. I think mm. the only other movie I can think of in 1960, it came out the same year, maybe even around the same time. I haven't looked into it. Was a, a movie called a Japanese movie called Jigoku by uh, Nabu Nakagawa, which is basically half a movie is people doing bad things, and the other half is them paying for it in hell. Oh wow! <laughs> oh, that sounds good. Really, really gruesome violence. Like not just hmm. wow, that's gruesome for 1960. Like really gruesome stuff. But I still think Black Sunday was kind of beyond that. Yeah, I was surprised. I mean, you got nails being stabbed into an eye, a man burning in a fireplace. That was, uh, that was rotting corpses, and that, I mean a lot. We, you for see that the time. court. You see the corpses rot yeah. in reverse. You see this. Yeah. Like that is almost more gross as seeing the skin <laughs> sort of bubble up and become alive again, mm-hmm. and just seeing the flesh <laughs> sort of go from dead to reanimated. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that you know most zombie movies don't. Most zombie movies they just look like cadavers. We're here. Oh man, that was so gross. But uh, gross. But like the first ten minutes of Black Sunday, I have to think. Like me and Jim were talking about this uh, last night and today. The only other horror movie we can think of that opens so strongly is Suspiria, Suspiria. where yeah. it's just the setup uh, is so. Number one, the executioners of that era, when you just had the mm-hmm. hood on and the, the giant muscled oil, like sweaty men, like yeah, that is never wearing shirts oh, for some reason. Never ever. And I mean, they're probably more associated with Farside comics and maybe Wizard of Id, but they're like really like scary to me. I still yeah. think the hoods, the hooded executioner, is one of the scariest sort of archetypes. And you just have this woman openly. You know, it's not saying, oh, she's evil. Like, she's openly just, like, <laughs> just calling to Satan. And, and so that, so someone who, you know, grows up afraid of uh, afraid of the devil and stuff, that's that's always powerful is when you hear people doing satanic rites and I stuff. I don't like that. I yeah. just don't like the cult collective coming, banning together to... Uh, and, I, and I don't mind if it's... And it, it honestly, it doesn't freak me out if it's just uh, evil... If it's quote unquote evil, but when mm-hmm. they call to the Judeo Christian Satan, that's yeah. <laughs> there's always something, no matter what. There like, is definitely something. You know, about like I, that. even even uh, last yesterday when I watched the Black Cat, like there's a, there's a scene where Karloff is performing a satanic rite, and it's mm-hmm. just the uh, hairs on the back of my neck come up. And then you have the setup of you see the really creepy mask that they're about to put on her, and then very slowly it turns, so you yeah. see the fucking spikes inside, and then it does. Uh, it does the uh, the shot I always associate with Scarface, uh, De Palma Scarface, where uh, it pushes an object as close to the camera as possible, and then immediately yeah. uh, shows the object in reverse, going. Um, so you see the spikes, and then you see the, it going on her face, and you're like, "Oh Jesus!" And then you just see a man with a giant hammer, like it's mm-hmm. a, it's a master it's a master lesson in just building of tension. Yeah, of the, the point of view of the telling, mask a, and- telling a story of images and stuff. Yeah, and the shot of from her perspective of the spikes advancing like that. We also really just have to bring up how incredible Barbara Steele is. Oh yeah, fucking amazing. What was just the- portraying this representation of evil and those eyes and this cl- like classic vampirist meets witchcraft. She's pretty good in. There's one other Italian horror movie. I got it in like one of those fifty, uh, like one of those Mill Creek packs. It's called Nightmare Castle or something. Yeah, um, she's good in that as well. But I love her. I love that. This whole movie just looks for excuses to show off her cleavage. Yeah. <laughs> just constantly people are tearing away her clothes and like. Sort of epitomizes that Elvira 
sort of look in a way. Yeah, well, it's the yeah, but it's also it's also very much a that I I knew for sure came yeah. from Terrence Fisher. Oh, okay. uh, as yeah, far yeah, as yeah. as okay. far as just the decolletage, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I just but, think it's really distinctive that even you know, uh, like having the, that the monochromatic arena still, it's like the 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 richness of the of the of the light and the darkness, and it just brings out this depth that I found incredibly effective, like the use of fog or. Uh, hands reaching out and uh, the shot of the moon breaking through the clouds and I was like re- I mean this is a gorgeous looking movie I want this on Blu-ray <laughs> I, got like- to, I watched it on Blu-ray oh, and wow. I was so happy when I yeah. saw it because it's it is a movie where the darks being really black yeah. and varying rich and black like really adds it's a lot to it. It's just really an incredibly shot black and, and, white and that experience. Is, and that is and would you say Gabe that's that's just Mario Bava's history as a as a director He's- of photography? He's a director of photography and a painter, mm. and and so he ch- kind of approached it that way, or he was, I should say. Um, they actually refer to him. I, I watched all these with the Tim Lucas commentary tracks, and Tim Lucas. Oof. There's there's probably never been a writer who's been more devoted to a single subject on film as Tim Lucas, who wrote this massive book all about Bava that took him like decades to write meeting all these people and then he had to self-publish it because it was so expensive and you could buy a copy if you have like an extra $200 sitting around. So I haven't been able to actually read this book but he has all these commentary tracks and he refers to uh, Bava as a frustrated painter. I don't really know what that means. (laughs) In terms of cinematography, he just manages to make the camera like its presence. I mean, it's slowly gliding but it also feels kind of unwanted in this atmosphere. Like, and, And in a way it just creates this beautiful uh, yeah, feeling of dread. There's a little bit. There's a little bit of that in this. I would say we're probably going to talk about that more. We talk about Bay of Blood as mm-hmm. far as the camera as a third person. It's being invasive. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, and the way in I've I've noticed that about f- former painters, term filmmakers like David Lynch. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Like you know, what's the other most one of the other most gorgeous black and white movies ever? That would be Eraserhead. Eraser yeah. Like it's just about. You know, you paint with light. Uh, a word mm-hmm. up to Thomas Kincaid, and <laughs> and um, so that's that explains a lot. But it's also just you're right. Like the camera is not. It's not like a. You know, it's the camera doesn't just stay still. It's not a simple two shot. Right. Um, there are a lot of it. Does it sort of explore the rooms of the castle and it? It's not very showy either. That's what I liked. About no, it. no, it's not. No, it's not Argento. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's. I would say that part of what he does so well in this movie, particularly, and maybe because he didn't have color to deal with, uh, was he creates planes, like multiple planes of vision, really well. Which is something I think a lot of hmm. filmmakers kind of look down on for years because it it looks uh, kind of like a diorama yeah. or stagey. But now they're all doing it because 3D is big. Right. That's that interesting. Was, like something like like Dread, I noticed had planes to it, and it and then I'm watching hmm. uh, watching. Uh, Black Sunday on Blu-ray, and I'm noticing it has planes. It has a foreground, a middle ground, and a background, and they almost seem flat in their own right. But And then the other thing I noticed this time that I never noticed before is that he creates a lot of uh, frames with his set pieces. So, like, there'll be a... They'll be shooting, and the foreground thing will be some sort of arch that he's shooting through, and that arch creates a frame. Yeah. Uh, Or, like, you know, pillars that are on their sides, and that creates a frame. And, and uh, hmm. one, of the, one of the things I find about this that sort of um, – because we, we, we talked a lot about Italian horror 
uh, on the Argento episode, right. and we and I and I sort of voiced sort of how a lot of the aesthetic of Italian horror is something, and a lot of the uh, sort of standbys of Italian horror are things that I'm not necessarily big fans of. But one thing I think Bava does really well in this is he does create a sense of an unknown. You don't know what's going on. You know that something malevolent is out there, and there's right. a force happening. But he doesn't but make it explicit. He doesn't make it explicit, and. Uh, but you you just know that there's a creeping sense of dread coming in. You know that uh, that the fact that she he dripped blood onto that corpse is, yep. is bad like, news. That is that is <laughs> as foreboding as if you saw the corpse blink or something like. Uh, and just and he sets up all these pieces where even if you don't like this isn't a tightly wound story. There's not a lot of story to be had. It's as far it's pretty much two doctors arrive. One you know accidentally it's it's almost like a pumpkin head where it's like they accidentally resurrect a spirit or something oh, yeah. and then they're oh now we got to deal with this for mm-hmm. the rest of the well, movie except for then there's all this incredibly convoluted backstory that we're supposed to be able to discern with the family like that there are doubles and that they are like i don't they're descendants but um, i don't i don't he's I don't big know. on that he's big on the family union but it doesn't feel it doesn't feel to me like uh bob it doesn't feel to me like bava wants us to keep like i think to me that is just something that adds a layer to it and that adds and that adds a little more feeling of the unknown and it, it's suggestive but he doesn't expect us to follow it because it's yeah. not necessary you don't need to understand why the people in the paintings are showing up and why mm-hmm. there are characters in the paintings that weren't there before in the paintings yeah and you don't need to know all that in order to follow the uh the the logic and this the plot of the film God, that's another recurring motif is like the painting that suddenly alters later in the movie i feel like i saw that in a couple of our, uh, of his movies well i Where, think he actually paints those paintings usually himself i wouldn't be surprised either yeah. he or his dad <laughs> i know his dad is credited as doing a lot of the effects in those early movies well, he's he see like them- thematically, I, I I was thinking of like he's just really into the deceptive nature of appearances and yeah. kind of like the uh, how the, the, we have these destructive capabilities within our human nature and there is a, a tendency to sort of focus on that idea of doppelgangers running around or the death of the family unit, but mostly it is about people being possessed or controlled by unknown forces and I always like that about horror movies, just like the idea that. You are not always in control of your own emotional states, so I think that's really cool. But here, it's—I mean, it—you kind of know where it's going, and you know that it's going to become this revenge tale right from the outset. But what he brings to this is just incredible, like this just dynamic uh, approach to uh, filmmaking. But yet, it's not showy. Like I said, it's just very dramatic with these striking compositions and atmospheric sets, but it's also cobbled together from these limited resources too. It's not like he had like a super high budget or anything no, to work with. It was a hundred thousand dollars is what it's listed as. That's incredible. Look at and what there's you can a lot do. Of, the thing I learned from the, the, the commentary is how many special effects are actually in each shot. There's uh, such a lot as, of matte paintings and stuff. Oh, right. Hmm. That was something I read about uh, planet of the vampires. Uh, yes. Was that uh, like so much of it was just like using mirrors and stuff because they didn't want to have to pay for mat like to mat in the backgrounds and sets and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I think. It, well, I think it has a that Black Sunday in particular, which was I, it felt weird watching it again because I was trying to think of interesting things to say about, it, and I realized I it, it's one of those movies that just sort of you just watch, and it's really hard to think about critically because you're just kind Sucked of experiencing. In. Yeah. 
It, it completely washes over you. It really and does. It, it, anytime you start watching it, if you're in the mood and if you're ready for it, it's going to invade you. It's and it feel it's like the single best expression of gothic horror, like outside yeah. of maybe Edgar Allan Poe's fiction, like to me, where it's just you like suddenly I get why because there are, I've seen other you know films that are you know claimed to be Hammer inspired or like and it's just. Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Right, and they're not they don't seem to use the the settings to work to their benefit. It just because things take place in a castle doesn't mean that it's foreboding and but in this mm-hmm. the settings and 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 just the fact that there's uh, the dead body they find in the river and then which someone just in a weird bit of exposition someone goes, "Oh, that's who he is. And that's where he came from. He fell down the river." Like Yeah. Um, and just sort of this thing happening to the village, and then suddenly, the, you know, it's uh, you get this sort of wider scope and this panic, and um, uh, yeah, like it's just it feel it's just like a perfect expression of gothic horror. Um, it's not too anything. It's mm-hmm. uh, it is you, you're right, Gabe. It feels almost like Halloween, where it's just such a perfectly executed uh, exercise in you know intention and tightening the screws that. Yeah, uh, kind of like the haunting as well, which I'm well, excited to rewatch. It's also in 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 Halloween in that Halloween sense of that it kind of takes you back to child a childlike uh, manifestation of horror, I guess, like the idea of an inevitability in the horror mm. uh, that this is what horror is, and this is what gothic is, and there's no real reason to think about it. It's like I don't, I, it's I'm just really there, out there, and you. Can- it's yeah. like it's, you can't escape it. It's kind of like unavoidable, you know. And uh, that's that's sort of an interesting angle. Especially uh, there were two things I did. Uh, I watched Black Sunday, and then I started reading something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury, hmm. um, and I fell in love with them in the pretty much the exact same way. And I never even thought about looking at Black Sunday in terms of returning into the childhood. But that is exactly why I loved something Wicked This Way Comes. It perfectly captures. That uh, the it, it's perfectly nostalgic, but in in presenting nostalgia, it also presents uh, sort of how things were creepy before you understood what things were and what, what happens, why they're creepy, right? It's yeah, just, yeah. And it's all about the subtlety of it too. It's not you know he doesn't have to sh- you know scare you with jump scare like just those those type of things that you know in other horror movies they they rely on it. It's more just about the uh, the unknown sort of creeping into you and it's kind of out there in the world or when you least expect it you come across it and it could come in the form of a of a sort of a demoness in a way that's like you know invading you and you know there's this sort of um erotic undertone going on with with her performance as well and it doesn't seem like the sort of necrophilia is subtext as much no it's not it's not not afraid like there is a a, there is a there's a necrophiliac subtext to dracula and to all the Mm -hmm. but not i think i feel like it's not as buried it's just in the way she presents herself that really comes across i think not just the sex but the fact that it's sex with someone who is dead yeah and that that sort of eroticism of death uh, it's not as buried and it's not as afraid of it, um, mm-hmm. which ends up making it more scary. Uh, well, and something I thought about this time watching it that had never dawned on me before was um, how much her performance reminded me of Sigourney Weaver in Ghostbusters after uh, Zool huh. has taken her over. Oh, shit, you're right. 
I, I, just, I, yeah. I wonder if somewhere back in time, Scorny Weaver had seen that movie, and maybe I, I doubt it, but or maybe, uh, or um, uh, maybe Bateman. What? No, what's Ivan Reitman? Ivan, Ivan Reitman. Reitman. I, maybe yeah. Ivan Reitman saw it and directed her it's, that way. That's entirely possible. I mean, uh, I know that John Landis did, and I sometimes confuse those two. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I kept seeing things that I knew. Oh, this is later ripped off. Like, obviously, we're talking about Bay of Blood, and every slasher movie, you know, rips off Bay of Blood. And a lot of the Friday Thirteenth movies rip off shot for shot the kills. Oh yeah, and the special effects and the and the and the gags. But like, the, I think the way that the um, the I can't. What's the character who looks? He, lo- he looks like a sixties. He looks like a member of sort of a sixties folk rock group. Uh, oh, with the, the younger doctor. No, the mustache guy who who rises from his grave. Oh, uh, uh, is it Igor? No, wait, not Igor. Anyway, no, when he rises, the I, way he rises from his grave is almost identical. The, the way the shot is set up to uh, Jason in Jason Lives, <laughs> uh, sort oh, of. And there's, yeah, and Jason Lives, that guy, I can't remember that director's name, but I know he was watching Italian horror movies. There's there's a lot of that stuff in there. Well, it's Igor Javatu. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Igor. Igor. I and would just, say Igor. And just simple reason. stuff with, like, the fog rolling in and... There's some like he mixes sort of there's there are some set settings that look like they were filmed on location and then there are some that look like sound staged and the way mm-hmm. he mixes those like whenever the fog is rolling in and or I like the guy rises from his grave it's more abstract and it looks more like a sound stage but then there's that great slow motion shot of the carriage going through the uh, the the cor- the country road at the, the uh, that the uh, milkmaid witnesses, mm-hmm. and it's all in slow motion with the smoke billing off it, and that looks like it was on location. And sort of the way he uh, melds the sort of more arch abstractness of a soundstage with location stuff again, it it, it plays with you. That's the beauty: is there was no locations; it was no? all on soundstage. Wow! Yeah, they the huh. the com- again the commentary helped point. I didn't know all this stuff. Uh, they talk about how if the horses step one more step over; they're going to run into. A wall and they cut just before then <laughs> wow oh and then and then i watched uh ifc very brief ifc documentary and they compared all those shots you were just describing to a bunch of shots from tim burton's sleepy hollow yeah which oh, i, I always totally thought of as a hammer in, inspired movie but they ab- are absolutely right he is ripping off those shots directly yeah <laughs> i'm not as fan of i'm not as, i'm not Big on Sleepy Hollow. No, n- neither of us. No, are. but even if you don't like it, you. I mean, I was, I was just like, oh yeah, I never even, I never noticed how direct the imagery was. Absolutely. Well, again, I mean, just uh, sort of to point out the, the difference. We talked about Sleepy Hollow on our Tim Burton episode, but like, it's done mm-hmm. with such purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just I. It's not just I love big gothic sets, so I'm going to build elaborate gothic sets. It's not just uh, I am obsessed with these things, so I'll put these things in a movie. It's all done towards an end, whereas right. Sleepy Hollow, it's all of Tim Burton's favorite things without a story that supports a reason to put all his favorite things in it. You know, like, and that's just like that's the g- genius of Bava. It none of it feels like it's sticking out. You know, even great Argento movie like Suspiria, there are parts where you're like, all right, this is Dario Argento sort of getting his rocks off, and this is Dario Argento fetishistic thing to it, right? And there's and there's none of that in Bava's in any of. Bava's films, uh, where you feel like this is him 
uh, sort of he he wanted this in a movie, so he put it in a movie. And logic be damned, like he really is concerned with constructing a film that works, and he does it so well. I mean, again, it's like how, how many times have we seen these conventions, or just you know you kind of know what to expect, but yet it's still effective. I mean, we've seen crypts and cobwebs and castles and. Uh, you know, steamy forests and fog and all these other things and other types of movies before. But here it is, you know, and this this movie, uh, you can watch it now and it's absolutely still uh, creeps into you today. And I think a lot of it is just because of his control behind the camera and he conveys everything visually so so well. He doesn't always have to be the type of director. I mean, it does more in sort of the Giallo films where he sort of spells things out within the plot. But he he really does convey everything uh, through through the camera and through um, through the atmosphere. Yeah, he tells he doesn't tell the story through dialogue. Right. Uh, I was thinking that's that really several times during I was watching this movie. I'm like, I bet I could watch this on mute and still get the gist yeah, of it. Exactly. And that's the definitely. strength of a great director. And also, I, I think a lot of it is he didn't have the uh, he didn't have the ego that so many other Italian direct uh, later Italian horror movie directors had, like. No matter how bad his movies got, Fulci always thought of himself as a genius. <laughs> and Argento still thinks of himself as a genius. But Bava, in almost everything, he was notoriously shy, so there's not a lot of stuff about him that I could find. Mm-hmm. But almost everything, he's he's much more about the craft, and he likes to talk about the special effects. And just seems like a really down-to-earth guy who's just making the movie. That's good to hear. Yeah, it, well, it's refreshing, yeah. you know? <laughs> Yeah, and it's great just to know that he's made so many different kinds of horror movies. And, you know, obviously we're going to get to Bay of Blood real soon here, but it's really cool. Uh, I didn't get a chance to see Planet of the Vampires, but the idea of him just like trying out, you know, uh, just the horror storylines and different worlds and different settings within, you know, just genres and. Uh, even just, I, I know he did like kind of a Hitchcock thing with uh, the girl who knew too much, and I just really love it when a filmmaker just dips into other styles and um, you know go just tries different things out with his strengths, you know. And maybe not all of them are as equally successful. I'm sure there's some some minor work uh, interspersed throughout his filmography, but this is definitely like probably the pinnacle of his career. I think, like out of all the things I've seen. This is his most assured and confident and effective film. I would agree. So, yeah. It's, it's a little sad since it was his first solo movie. But <laughs> yeah, no, but, I mean, still. He, I would agree. It's, it's an incredible but debut. That is, that is actually, you know, one of the uh, strengths of being a, a, a journeyman is just that you don't have to worry about topping your last film. True, you just right. have to worry about working. You know? Yeah, no, and he so did. He you worked don't, his you ass off. Like, if he made Black Sunday and it was perfect, and then he spent the rest of his career trying to recapture Black Sunday, that would be sad. But yeah. the fact is, Bava didn't try to recapture Black Sunday. Bava tried to make every movie what movie it was. Mm-hmm. Apparently, his son tried to make a remake of this. Apparently, uh, his <laughs> I haven't seen it. I I, I don't I don't think Lamberto Bava is a very good filmmaker. Hmm. Um, de- you know, let me see. Demons is fine but i still feel that's more argento's movie than his oh i want to see that i've been meaning to see that i know jay is there a, a lot of is there a lot of nepotism in italian horror or is he the well, part of part of it is is that and and i actually found the, a story i think it was on imdb that argento himself is so obsessed with uh bava he was young at the time and so he seems to have 
hired on Lamberto Bava based on the fact that he was because Lamberto Bava is second unit on a lot of Argento movies. And uh, there's a funny story where he actually, uh, and I probably should talk about this in a minute, but um, there's a story where where Argento reportedly loved Bay of Blood so much that he had a friend who was a projectionist steal him a print. <laughs> and the theater ended up just showing a different Bava movie, Hatchet for the Honeymoon. <laughs> oh, yeah, I wanted to track that one down. I couldn't find it. I think I would like that one from the sounds it's, of it. I, I, it's, I would put it lower on my oh, list. Okay. It's, it's weird, but I haven't watched it in a long time. I should yeah, probably. Be I like weird. <laughs> yeah. It's a, sometimes it's a much the more, more foggy movie. Yeah, sometimes the more surreal, I, I can get behind that, but. Because uh, again, after you know we we did Argento, it's not like I was going into this thinking we're going to get some of the more surrealistic, uh, you know, takes on on horror films with with Bava. Because I did a little bit of reading up on him and saw like, oh yeah, I mean he he was kind of a traditionalist, especially on the onset there, and, and you know we we get that especially with Black Sunday here. Uh, but there again, it's still dreamy. It's still yeah, a little no, it is at, definitely, and it's and it's still more violent than you would expect from a film like that. And it's still it definitely you can still has surprises. Get, it still is undoubtedly um, Italian horror. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of what, speaking of you, what you said of uh, Dario Argento's relationship with Bava's son, that reminded me of uh, of I feel like I feel like whenever one of Frank Zappa's kids is in a movie. It's just because the, <laughs> the filmmaker loves Frank Zappa. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually reminded me, there was a movie I forgot to put on my, uh, my rapid-fire list. I watched uh, Nightmares. You're right. The uh, 80s anthology film Nightmares. And uh, Okay, go <laughs> ahead. Are you timing it, Jim? Yes, I, mean, Four, I am. 40 seconds on Nightmares. Go ahead. Um, Nightmares is a horrible 80s anthology movie. It's four chapters. None of them are particularly well done. The funniest one is Emilio Estevez, is someone who gets addicted to video games. It's the only one I remember. And then when he finally beats it, he gets sucked into the video game. But in that one, Moon Zappa is in it. And <laughs> I, and she does nothing. Like, I don't know why you would cast Moon Zappa, except you want Zappa's name on. Like, that. <laughs> have, do you, have you seen Zappa? Nightmares, Gabe? Are you a big No, anthology? I've never actually seen that one. Uh, I've seen the... Uh... Again, the box art, but I've never actually seen that movie. It's not. It's. I mean, there's a g- amazing shot. There's a. There's Snow a creep show. There's a dual. There's a dual ripoff with Lance Hendrickson, and there's an amazing part where um, the ground starts to like as if there was a shark underneath the ground, and then a truck, the truck that has been chasing Lance Hendrickson, pops out of the ground uh, as if it was a shark leaping out of this out of the water to <laughs> grab him. So. <laughs> Um, there, there's one amazing shot, and then there's the really silly Emilio Estevez. Uh, Emilio Estevez still playing a punk because he's listening. He's like nonstop listening to punk music throughout. So that was kind of an and interesting. playing video game. Yeah. It, it's sort of an interesting connection to Repo Man. But anyway, oh wow, yeah. <laughs> very good. Forgot nightmares. Uh, a forgettable movie. Never forget your nightmares. Um, I think that's should about. Is there anything else you wanted to add about Black Sunday? Um. Well, I, I just wanted to, to say one thing about you saying it. It was definitively an Italian horror movie. Is that that's kind of the point of it? Is that even though it's not a particularly original movie, that he actually ripped off shots from other movies. It is. It sets the stage for basically every other Italian horror movie that came after it. Even even people like Fulci, who were already working at the time, and Margaretti, um, basically worked from that template. And you know, you rip off a shot, but you do it better. And you have you don't care about the 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 script as much as you do the uh, the feel the now, tone. What, what kind of movies was uh, Bava ripping off? Just like Terrence Fisher movies, or 
there is a Terrence Fisher um, House of Wax is one that comes up a lot and I don't remember that movie well enough and I really wanted to watch it before this but they didn't have it on Netflix and I don't own a copy of it um, but that was one of the things I got from the commentary track is that Tim Lucas sort of rattles off this shot is familiar from this movie and if you can find that shot in the movie you realize oh yeah it is from that movie but Bava did that better um, and then well the movie Baron Blood there's uh, a thing that you can actually maybe link on on the website where someone did a sure. video essay comparing that Baron Blood's chase scene is identical to the chase scene from uh, from House of Wax. Huh. So he's def- he's definitely ripping people off, which is kind of part of the tradition of Italian horror movies. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's seen. Yeah, that that's just something I didn't know because it just seemed it seemed very much. It does. It feels original. It feels like the you know the first time you've seen something. Hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, Black Sunday, it is available. The Blu-ray is fairly new, right? Yeah, it came out uh, maybe two weeks ago. Yeah. If you get a chance to get the Blu-ray for Black Sunday, highly recommend it. It looks gorgeous. I imagine the commentary is on there. Yeah, the, the, that's pretty much the only extra, but it's on there. So, um, Just don't go to Netflix Instant trying to yeah. get it. <laughs> yeah. they, I heard that they, they switched it with the uh, Frankenheimer movie. Way to go, Netflix. How do they even do that? They're owned by two separate companies. I don't understand. They've done that before. I honestly don't know how that always happened. Like, not always, but it happens. It's happened a couple other times before where Netflix puts something under a different. Uh, it's a different year and a different director, but it's a different. The same title, and they'll. Yeah. It's crazy. It's too bad. Yeah. So, anyway, I think this would be a good time to move on to. Yeah. One of uh, my favorite slasher movies of all time. I'm probably the progenitor of most. Progenitor is the word of the show. Hey. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. Um, Bay of Blood. Bay of Blood. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Maybe I'll introduce this in in a different way. Exterior. Bay of Blood Day. The film opens with a long pan across the bay itself, establishing it as both the setting and character. We then go to a wonderfully stylish segment of an old, rich-looking woman in a wheelchair, looking out the window of her home at the lake and forest outside. Then she is suddenly, brutally strangled to death by her husband. The husband is then stabbed to death by an unknown assailant. This sets up a mood of distrust and suspicion that prevails through the whole film. We are introduced then to a cast of characters who all want their hands on the bay for different reasons. You know, Jim, since Don LaFontaine died, there's been a hole in the uh, voiceover industry. I'm working (laughs) on it. I still want to audition for the Muppets. And, and now that you've done that, there is still a hole. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think even more than setting up a say, I love that opening scene of Bay of Blood. I so do love it as well. Um, more, Even more than setting up a distrust, it, uh, it sets up a playfulness. Mm-hmm. The idea that the murderer gets murdered, and yeah. then you, <laughs> you're introduced to two characters, and then they are dispatched immediately. Uh, well, it's actually, it does more than that, because... At the time, Giallo movies, which are not slasher movies, even though they share a lot, were still really popular. And it immediately breaks the first rule where they show you the black glove killer's face. So I, they have a, somebody kill, he fiddles yeah. with his black gloves, and then they reveal his identity. 
I know. And that was very surprising the first time I saw it. <laughs> then they kill him. So they, they, they revealed his identity, but then it, they say, oh, it doesn't matter because he's dead now anyway. Also, ex- just the way that she hangs, like that's a, that's a weird way to hang someone. It's mm, <laughs> yes. such a great, ingenious way where they're just in a wheelchair. So they, if they could stand up, they'd be fine, but they can't. <laughs> Um, but no, this movie is so great. It's so playful. It it honestly it feels a bit cheaper and a bit. Uh, it doesn't. I mean, it it almost feels like the antithesis of Black Sunday as far as control and painting with light because it's not a beautiful film. Mm. Uh, there are striking images certainly, but it's not. There's some nice exterior shots. It's funny, just like I don't know. He's got some moments of contrast like especially with the music and the song choices but it, no it's and it's but it almost it feels cheap like there's a lot of uh day for there's a lot of day for night shooting that isn't particularly yeah. well done where to the point where you're not exactly sure what point in the day it's supposed to be because it shows the sun setting and then later it shows the sun still out and then mm-hmm I do wonder sometimes though watching it because I've never seen a really good print of it I have that's a, that's true I do want. I, I do wonder if that is partially just bad looking DVDs. I, I yeah. don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's possible. The, my biggest issue with the DVD I own, which is part of the quote unquote Mario Bava collection, um, which is just a flip case, uh, is that the sound is the sound uh, mixing is horrible. Where yeah. Certain conversations yeah. you have to turn the volume all the way up just to hear them. I noticed that too. And then certain you don't and. So, I mean, uh, one of the – I would say that uh, shoddy sound, um, other than the scores, which are Italian horror films are famous for, <laughs> I would say that shoddy sound is another thing that maybe is a hallmark of Italian horror because it's all post-production. Um, yeah. But, but – oh, so, so there's something else I learned. And the uh, – this particular movie, which is very unusual, was actually filmed – all the dialogue scenes were filmed twice, once in English and once in Italian – Hmm. And th- I actually own the Italian DVD, and I never noticed this before. And so I didn't really take the time to go back and compare, but apparently it actually changes the pacing of the film depending on which version you watch. So that makes the fact that the sound isn't very good suck even more because there's somewhere there's a good dialogue recording of the actors actually speaking for One themselves. One would think. Why? Now, do you know why Bava would do that? Like, that almost seems crazy, like a Tommy Wiseau filming something in... 35 millimeter and digital at the same time like what i i guess they just maybe he had i i didn't they don't say anything and maybe he had a problem with doubling maybe he didn't like it maybe it was a weird process for him so he knew he had to make it for two different uh markets so he just tried it both ways i have the english but it still looks like it's dubbed is it and i think that's what it is in the end is that it didn't work is what i'm yeah (laughs) it does look dubbed so yeah that's unfortunate but the film itself is just a whole load of fun, and you. What was? I'm sorry. What year did this film come out? Seventy one. Seventy one. Okay, mm-hmm. so a full uh, seven years decade. before Halloween. How how long before? Uh, uh, Almost a decade. Black Christmas. Before. Black Christmas uh, was seventy six, I think. Yeah. Okay, so a whole five years before that, mm-hmm. you get all of the hallmarks of. Oh, you sure do. A slasher movie. You get a bunch of teenagers uh, drunk, being silly, and getting naked in a cabin. Uh, and they drive up. They're introduced driving up, which is a thing that happens like all the Friday. I, I w- that's something I noticed. That's something I noticed when I was watching. Uh, I watched part of Hell High, and I was watch. I think I watched Friday Thirteenth Part Four or something. Like kids in slasher movies, fucking love car rides. They're yeah, always they having sure the time do. of their lives. They're I always know. like, woo! 
yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just like yeah. laughing and crazy and just making bad jokes and just like dying. Like, have you ever been in a long card ride with your friends? Like, eventually, you just have to turn on the radio because it gets really. Yeah. T- <laughs> yeah, there's sometimes ups and downs. We go sing with the radio, but yeah, usually it's pretty quiet. Um, that was actually one of my favorite things about Jeepers Creepers is how great the car ride with the between the two siblings is uh, in the beginning before the, the sort of the dual stuff with the truck starts happening. Is I love that the the kids are just like just having like a really banal conversation in that but um mm. in bay of blood uh you get you get that set up you get um the, the sort of eccentric neighbors uh the bug collector yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the sort that Crazy are sort wife. of playing comic relief you get the uh you get something that is honestly should be done more because it's the easiest it doesn't take a lot of thought but something one of my favorite things i love when slasher movies do it right is when they do the transitions between scenes where it'll be someone being murdered and then it'll cut to someone like just like squirting ketchup on fries or, or dropping something. Yeah. I love or that. dropping. I yeah. The, the, <laughs> the craziest one in this instance is being a woman being beheaded. The level of gore has been comic, but not completely surreal uh, up to that point. So you don't expect someone's head to be cut off. Um, but when a woman's head gets cut off, it cuts to, two of the characters children's dropping a ceramic head and then that's it that's the end of that scene it's literally just an insert of two children dropping a ceramic head Um, you get that's an amazing feeling like by like the third one of those that maybe he's done it a few too many times but like a good joke like when you get to the sixth or seventh time he does something like that you know absolutely funny yeah it's Mm -hmm. the uh it's the sideshow bob rake theory um and it's (laughs) Is, I think that's actually what the AV Club calls it. Uh, and the AV Club, of course, they are the creators of most terms that we like use to... Pixie Manic Dream Pixie Girl. Dream Girl. Yeah. 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 Most terms we use to describe modern pop culture. So, yeah, the Sideshow Bob break theory applies as well. And again, it's just it's just Mario Baba having fun. You get the... Um, he pulls off something that most slasher movies, I think, try to do, and they almost always fail at, is he sets up all of these characters that you kind of are excited to get see killed, but they're not <laughs> annoying to hang out with. Yeah. I don't know. The teenagers in their whole little, like, my girl, not, not you know, like, fighting over the one girl and not the German girl, well, that, I mean, they're a little annoying. They're kind of annoying, but part of it is that he doesn't spend too much time on them. He doesn't invest it, a lot of... He doesn't, well, it's yeah. funny that, that they end up being such a cultural Minor. touchstone for other movies because they almost feel like extraneous within the plot yeah they're not they're not major characters if i was if i was told that they were added in reshoots that wouldn't surprise me (laughs) and and i i wouldn't be surprised either i don't know that but i don't think so because later like them finding the bodies of the teenagers is a plot point so Mm -hmm. but yeah it does feel extraneous um uh, but at the same time he's able to he in just the way he paces it and something that jim described before the way the camera sort of moves around and feels invasive it feels like a third person omniscient force and that way you're not you're not invested in any one of these characters and it's able to cut from character to character without you worrying about wait what's going to happen to her what where's this plot going like it's it's just he manages to pace that sort of thing really well where any one of the characters could be a killer and any one of the characters could be killed at any moment um and it's a really fun game that he plays oh it definitely is It, it feels like he's just having a good time and it's Again, the camera work is very uh, 
subjective, but it's all, I, th- I feel like he has like this sort of morbid romanticism with everything and how he uh, he does linger on a couple of the deaths for for long periods of time. Like what? Like- the uh, well, I mean, just the, when he's the 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 killing of the uh, of the couple in bed, I feel like that lingers a little bit longer than you'd expect. Or I don't, I don't, it's it's surprising to me in, in some instances, just because I, uh, I I knew that this was where a lot of the slasher genre derives from, and seeing these kills almost like yeah, completely ripped off in in other films, uh, but he just at the same time he brings his own sort of uh, trademark captivating approach to it and I really like that he has a sense of humor throughout and obviously by the very end of this movie you know he's not taking it seriously and even just all the twists and stuff because it it does pl- like with with, every, with all the twists piling upon itself it feels like th- this this kind of plot line could have been taken like a Macbeth approach with how uh, everybody's just trying to fuck everybody over for the for the, for the um uh, the bay and everything. It does feel like he's mocking. That, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Twists, yeah, like it's, it's a satire of more that. than anything. It reminded me of the end credits of Wild Things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you yeah, remember yeah. like yeah. the movie Wild Things ends, and then for ten minutes more in the credits, there are, like, you just kind of find <laughs> it's out. Like, all oh, these this more person has something to do with it too. Oh, and this person has something to do with it too. And I just, I, I just love that. Again, I mean, sort of goes back to my interest in, in watching something like Dead of Winter. It, it, if I feel like the filmmaker isn't taking it too seriously, and you know, it's not pretentious, and it's not about like, oh, this, you know, this, this plot is really, uh, you know, something that you have to pay attention to, and it's really intricate, and it's very important, and it's, it, and, you know, it's, I think it's really. Um, the kind of horror movie that I enjoy because it wears its sense of humor on its sleeve. And yet it's still really gory and it's still really effective. But, and it's not, it's not a parody. Right. I mean, I'm, the opening sounds like it was sort of a parody of Giallo almost. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I think it has parody to it. Um, like there's homage a shot, and parody maybe. Combined. Yeah. There's a shot where um, after that, I think it's after the couple gets stabbed through the bed, which is, yeah. identical to a shot in Friday 13th 2. Um, yeah. It cuts to a car that has a smiley face on it. Well, you know, yeah, it's definitely it, no, it has a huge S- sense of humor, but like it isn't like what I think self-aware horror, I think late 90s post-scream mm-hmm. American well, I think horror. It's, it's self-aware from the standpoint that it... Visually self-aware? Not, it's not, visually self-aware and also that, that there there's no real solving the, the crime. That's kind of the point is that it's like if, what if Agatha Christie wrote a book? <laughs> well, like yeah. I, I mean, Murder on the Orient Express is kind of a satire. Uh, well, I guess spoof satire. I don't know what you want to say the difference is between spoof. Those. I think I think satire is it works. Uh, like like you can't say Naked Gun works as a police movie, but it's because it's a spoof. Whereas right. I think a satire can like RoboCop works as an action movie, but it's also a satire mm-hmm. of. Okay. Uh, okay. Then yeah. Then okay. I <laughs> I agree with you then. Um, I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, it's just it, it doesn't it doesn't break the reality. It doesn't, uh, you know, it's no, no, no it doesn't. Crazy happens, and he's still inventive than, with the kills and too. By the time like things do go crazy again, like the, the decapitation is so out of nowhere. It's yeah. I've, it's one shot. Like I don't, I think you you see like half a second of someone swinging something, and then you just see someone's head flying off. It's yep. not set up in any like it's not even then like the it's not even like the, the first Friday thirteenth where. Which was silly, but at least it's set up as the big climax. Mm-hmm. It just sort of comes out of nowhere. 
Um, I was. I'm still. I still find the knife to the face pretty shocking. Just and that the, one was basically ripped off on Friday one, I think, mm-hmm. if I'm remembering correctly. There's a knife. There's a machete to the face in that one. Yeah. And and that one works so well because there's no warning for it. It just happens. There's no build up to it. He just goes to answer the door and then he has a knife in his head. Uh huh. And the uh, and the same thing happens at the end when that he gets stabbed when the guy who we find out well they all did it but the <laughs> the squid hunter is uh is found out and it kills the one woman he walks outside and we don't we don't even get a chance to see him walk outside we just cut to him being stabbed with uh some sort of fishing implement there's uh, like no warning behind that's it. something that i su- i'm surprised hasn't been ripped off more um yeah there aren't a lot of horror movies where the killer is everyone <laughs> And no, I, but is am I am I misremembering Murder on the Orient Express? Isn't that like what's revealed at the end is that everybody was the killer? I actually have not I've not read that. Didn't we talk about a movie on the podcast where that was? Yeah, that um, yeah, that was the free. Um, were we uh, cruising? cruising? Yeah, no, no, that was that's different. Cruising. The text of the film is that there's the murder has been one person this whole time, mm. but Friedkin subverts it by casting. The victims, yeah, okay, but it's not right, literally right, right. those characters. Yeah. after their death, killing other people. Mm-hmm. That's okay, different. That that's sense. not the text. That's that's maybe the subtext he was working on. Right, but again, right. part of cruising is that the subtext is so goddamn hard to figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think De Palma should just cut Bava a you know, check. Yeah, well, or the you know, Bava estate a check. Well, I mean, I, they're all drawing from Hitchcock, but well, yeah, true. But it's I I think it's crazy. Like even in the more playful, you know. Uh, playful kind of slasher movies you d- i if i recall like the fact that scream the twist was that there were two killers that was kind of was that, that not, was a big deal yeah that, that was, was that so was, was kind of deal. like that never occurred to someone that because they because right. it so exists in the realm of jason freddy mm-hmm. ghostface so then i know like, so then when scream worked on so many levels it was great no yeah, yeah. I, like, I like scream a lot but like so the i'm, I'm surprised that Beyond that, there hasn't been really any slasher movies where there's a ton of different killers. Because hey, remember, remember earlier in the podcast when we were talking about Lieberman. Oh uh, yeah, Jeff Lieberman. Yeah, mm. it's kind of a spoiler, I guess, at this point. But you should probably see uh, just before dawn. Oh, cool. Well, well maybe we will. Yeah. That's. I mean, it's. I was it, hoping Identity was going to kind of go that route, but it didn't. It went the no, horrible. No, it didn't. Route. That was a disappointment. It went the, the the way the one the one thing that's driving me nuts and. It, I don't want to give anything away for Patrick because he's going to be watching a movie soon probably that would give that away. And I shouldn't have said that now that I just said it out loud. So I'll just strike that from the record. I literally don't know either part of what you're talking about. (laughs) I know. Well, I went from identity to um, I was about to say another movie that follows in that same tradition of a plot twist that drives me absolutely insane when it happens in the last act. Oh, shit. Does the entirety of Looper take place in a mental patient's head? No, 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 no. But if you for the next episode, if you watch another movie, you'll you'll see that pop up possibly again. All right, whatever. No, it's good. It's good that you don't understand what I'm talking about. If you don't want me to know, I'm not going to try to understand. Good. good. Um, It's uh, but also just the fact that it's really well paced. Mm -hmm. That there are 13 murders in 80 minutes. Yeah. uh, You know, means that you don't go a long time without a murder happening. You don't go a long time without something happening. Uh, no one's spending a lot of time on the mystery because no one gets a chance to catch their breath before someone else gets bumped off. Right. Um, like, it just makes it very watchable. 
I was really, it was really easy just to sink in and, uh, and just sort of fall into it again. And I think that's what makes Bay of Blood so pleasurable, even if, like, uh, I, I've only, cause, because my internet isn't good enough to watch Netflix Instant anymore, <laughs> uh, something has happened to my internet in the past several weeks or whatever, but uh, the only Bava movies I got to see were Planet of the Vampires and, uh, and the two films we're discussing. And so I kind of associate Bava with really well-lit, uh, sort of slowly tension building in and, uh, and sort of an unknown force happening. I think Bay of Blood is so different. Is, are there any films in Bava's uh, filmography that are similar to Bay of Blood, or is it sort of it's, an aberration? Uh, there's one movie that was not com- completed in his lifetime that was then later put together called uh, Rabid Dogs, and it was re-released as Kidnapped, and his hmm. son put in some extra scenes. And the whole point of that movie is it was sort of, it was sort of his version of uh, Last House on the Left in a way, be- but it all kind of takes place inside a car. It's people kidnap uh, a, f- a husband and wife and make them drive. Uh, and there's all dynamic character dynamic within the car and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and that one shot really rough um, as part of the point of the movie. Hmm. Um, but then as far as, I mean, he did do Danger Diabolic, which is really well shot, but is entirely uh, lighthearted and uh, colorful in a different way. It's nothing gothic about it. Um, and, you know, I've never seen his other comedy uh uh, Dr. Goldfoot and the Gold uh, Girl Girl Bombs. Did oh, that's do, I, I saw Bikini Machine. I did he? Do he that did the well? other one. Okay, he did, girl, he did Girl Bombs. He did Girl oh. Bombs. They're kind of it's like a lame '60s sex comedy where you're not allowed to have much sex in it. So it's just. Right. Uh, I I prefer of of that genre. I prefer the beach party setup. <laughs> yeah, be. it's it fits within that though. Yeah, but I, like I said, I never actually seen it. Even though it's on Netflix, I've never gotten around to watching that one. Mm-hmm. I probably will because I love Vincent Price. But as far as '60s sex comedies go, uh, I have that aforementioned Russ Meyer's box set <laughs> yeah, <you're laughs> of like four, of fourteen movies. So I got it. I got that sort of taken care of. Um, we really need to do a Russ Myers episode in the future. Oh yeah, He's, I'll put him on the list for sure. I, I, don't, I don't. I'm not as like, familiar. There are a lot of his films. I don't know what you can say about him other than. The, the boobs are bigger than you'd expect, and the, the filmmaking is better than you would expect. But I'm on board. Uh, Sign me up. Yeah, <laughs> I really love Russ Meyer. Um, I mean, we did talk about his very first film, so um, I really want to briefly mention his very last film, which I know he sort of collaborated with his own son on, and it was actually the uh, the first movie I got to watch uh, recently of his, and I was kind of surprised by it. Uh, just, I mean, it was. Um, it's a movie called Shock, and I know you a little. You know a little bit more about um, the history of it, Gabe, because you mentioned that it was originally a sequel. Called well, the, that's just the way it was sold. It was sold as a sequel. Oh, okay. Uh, to the uh, it was the sold door. as Beyond the Door Two, right? But it really is. If it's going to be a ripoff of anything, it's not The Exorcist. It's closer to being a ripoff of The Omen, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 like the. The tone here is kind of it has a sense of I, I was thinking of Stephen King maybe meets Polanski here with you know having I, I just like the idea of a mother and son dynamic in you know in a house and questioning the the sanity of the son and the you know knowing the the history of the mother and her going mad uh, 
knowing that she was institutionalized and is the son inheriting her madness. That whole thing is really fascinating to me. Um, and then there's some creepy sort of dream-like sequences that are very effective, and one involving a box cutter. Uh, you know, just uh, just really good atmosphere again. And he's really good at just um, creating like this sort of haunted house scenario without resorting to the kind of cliches like that you'd expect in, in these types of movies. And I, I think watching a character being pushed to the brink of madness and despair and, you know, I, I, and the very end of this is and a lot of this movie is really about confronting death and her son having to come to terms with that as well. And I mean, her, you know, they lost her father and everything. So, I mean, there's just a really good, again, sort of disintegration of the family unit context behind this sort of uh, Stephen King horror-type story here. And it's really well done. What, what, what makes it Stephen King for you? Well, it's got some shining qualities to it, just in terms of the what's going on in this house kind of setups and things going on in the walls or, you know, it, how crazy is the son and does he have some sort of, I wouldn't say te- telepathic powers, but he's got some gift of some kind, uh, especially some sort of questionable moment where uh, the uh, stepfather is a, is a airline pilot and he's able to like control the plane while his, his stepfather, cause he doesn't like his stepfather, obviously. And there's this weird sort of Oedipal complex thing going on because it, at, at first I was wondering if, I, I don't know if you uh, recall, Gabe, it, 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 was the son possessed by the spirit of, in, the, in, of the father? The ghost of the father? That's, that's the implication in the movie. The okay. implication of the advertisers want you to think is that the son is the same kid from the Exorcist ripoff that she birthed. But <laughs> Okay. But right. the act, I think the actual idea is that either A, he is possessed by the father's ghost or whatever, or mm-hmm. B, she's totally insane. Right. And we're only really experiencing it from her point of view um, for the most part. Yeah, and it, I'm a sucker for those kinds of movies in well, general. Well, it's, it's a lot like Repulsion. A yeah. Lot like Repulsion. Yeah, definitely. I really liked it's like that Repulsion style. only in color. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It was really well done. I I I enjoyed it. I I don't think it's quite a again like a a masterpiece from 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 Bava in terms of the other things. I, there's still a ton more we need to see, but I, I for what it was, I I really got into it. And some there's some imagery in here that uh, I, I I won't shake because he's good at that. He's good at like in the same way that David Lynch. I don't know if. Uh, I wonder if David Lynch kind of stole this from Bava because I'm assuming Bava must have done this early in other films where like faces will sort of contort like and like stretch on the screen in a way. I don't know how, how really to describe it without like, uh, it's so weird. Like the way the, the, the screen will um, contort and like you see a close up of a face, but then it'll just start stretching on the screen. Right. I think it's a mirror. I think it's, a yeah, it's like a mirror sort of effect that I really like that. I think it's cool. He does that a lot in this movie. Just really good surrealistic nightmarish imagery in this movie that is interspersed throughout all the things going on. And I like the the son's introduction to the movie where the mom's calling out into the front yard and she's like, Marco, Marco. And then Marco looks into the camera and he's like, Marco, that's my name. (laughs) 
So it's really adorable. Um, but no, I mean the acting isn't very strong. But the 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 woman, uh, what, what what was she in before again, Gabe? She's uh, Dario Nicol- Daria Nicoletti. She's uh, was at the time Daria Argento's partner. Ah, okay. The mother of Ozzy Argento, and she was in Inferno and right. Deep Red. She co-wrote Suspiria, and she got shot in the eye in a opera. <laughs> you could see their relationship falling apart. That's right. Movie. Yeah, we discussed that with Argento. No, she's really good in shock. I, I well, she I really like got that. along with Bava really well. Like they yeah. were. He sounds like all he'd her be easy. He she sa- just loves him. He sounds mm-hmm. like he'd be easy to get along with. Yeah. Um, so what you another see? big difference between him and someone like Argento or Fulci or any of them is that he. I actually did an interview with the guy who wrote about him, Tim, Tim Lucas, and I had said hmm. something to the effect of, "Everybody seems to like this guy." And he said, yeah, actually, he, um, uh, Fellini and uh, Antonioni uh, would regularly attend his premieres and congratulate mm. him how great it was. And so everybody loved him. That's was, great. Yeah. He, he was like the Tarantino of the. Of the- right, only, only even less ego than that. He was like, I, I can't even think of a. Yeah. Like, I There's no real equivalent. No, I, I, I say Spielberg, but that doesn't really work either. No, um, I'd I'd like to talk about Planet of the Vampires. Yeah, please do. I'm curious about his AKA, take on a science AKA the, fiction, the movie that Prometheus remade. So. Exactly. Ooh, it is so much in common with Prometheus. Um, it's I actually a, made my friends watch that before we went and saw Prometheus because I had. I well, now I'm really writing. curious. You, you already you already saw that coming. I saw the writing on the wall when I saw those costumes. <laughs> That's true. I saw those costumes and I, I, I said, okay, you know, because there's a famous, not hmm. really famous, famous to me thing where uh, Ridley Scott refuses to admit that he ever saw Planet of the Vampires, even though it has all these things in common. Really? With, uh, alien. With the first alien. And so people just took him at his word and you know oh i guess dan o'bannon was the one who had seen it and maybe he was inspired but then you watch prometheus yeah because dan o'bannon is the one who came up with the space jockey which is basically the same as the giant skeleton it's a giant it's another giant skeleton it's (laughs) been sitting there for centuries love those giant skeletons um yeah i love planet of the vampires does does kind of a just kind of a funny uh bait and switch on you uh, at least for me, because like the first ten minutes are the hokiest, silliest sci-fi. Like everything you think of bad '60s sci-fi, yeah. it's just people like touching blinking lights and saying nonsense words, and nothing. And like you don't see the effects of anything. It's just the most boring thing. And then when they finally land on the planet, like it gets legitimately creepy. Um, it's not just like a you know sort of sort of a well-constructed sort of uh, sci-fi thriller. It's actually genuinely kind of disturbing especially when they go inside the other craft and they hear that recording uh that it's all warped and i think slowed down which is the same as the video quote like the 3d video recording in prometheus that they stumble upon exactly and it's all broken up and they can't really decipher it also i like i like the plan of the vampires you first see their outfits and you're like oh they'll be fine their necks aren't exposed at all yeah (laughs) the last thing you expect is that a vampire could get them and, and well, they're not even really vampires. I think that was no. just the AIP title. It was called yeah. Terror in Space. I feel like there was a time when they used the word vampire when nowadays they would use the word zombie. Uh, yeah. Where like yeah. vampire just meant some kind of ghoul, undead ghoul. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they sucked blood and sometimes they were just ghouls, you know? Uh, but it wasn't until uh, when, I guess, 
I because Romero doesn't say zombie in Night of the Living Dead, so no. would the, did the promotional material say zombie or? I don't think so. I, so would it be I, the Italian? Because where the word zombie probably came would be from the Italian films. Then I think that's when they started using it because Fulci um, changed. Well, no, I guess Dawn of the Dead does say zombie once when uh, hmm. when Ken Forey is talking about his voodoo uh, grandfather. He's talking about the voodoo and he says zombie at mm-hmm. some. No, he talked about him and then later he says there'll be a thousand zombies in here. Um, I think that's the only mention of zombie in, uh, and it's in the, what's funny, it's in the old style, which is a voodoo, someone who is right. under the, under the influence of black magic, not, not an, uh, not a corpse reanimated, which is right. the and, new definition of zombie. And so I'm pretty sure that it was, that it's kind of mentioned there. And then, uh, in Fulci's zombie, they have all this extra stuff. You know, he's trying, he has the drums and stuff, so he's trying to imply that it's somehow voodoo is bringing these people back from the dead. But then he's trying to have it both ways where they're also Romero zombies, so. Right. Yeah, but anyway, anyway, the vampires are more ghouls, but also what's sort of interesting is that they're, it's even, probably even a more, I know you're actually, you're actually a defender of Prometheus. I know you, you probably don't think it's the greatest film, but. Oh, no. Uh, you're, no. you're a defend, <laughs> Gabe, you're a defender of Prometheus, but. Probably even more, definitely for me, more intriguing sci-fi question than uh, anything that's in Prometheus, which is just the idea that the planet of the vampires, they have to kill these people and they have to take their ship because that's the only way their entire race won't be wiped out. Right. Hmm. And that's a key difference is in Prometheus, they were trying, I guess, you know. I don't know. They were trying to, <laughs> trying they were trying to, to invade us. Humanity and died in the process, whereas these people, these aliens got trapped. And as soon as you hear it put in those terms, like your sympathy kind of goes with the vampires. At least that's where my sympathy went. I was like, oh, yeah. these people versus an entire race. Well. <laughs> like, and, they, and, and it's implied that they might take over Earth when they land, but it's also not that heavily implied. They might just try to blend in. Yeah, it's kind of a, I mean, it is kind of like a Twilight Zone kind yeah. of esque twisk where it's like oh this planet looks defenseless <laughs> and it's and like it's, it's earth, earth. Oh. yeah i think even goosebumps did something like that uh, i just have one question yeah does billy corgan show up to say the world is a vampire <laughs> that of the, of the we've been blessed in the past what five years with non-stop cultural references to vampires and that was the one that you could you, you grasped at <laughs> yeah <laughs> Like, I was literally, thinking that. there's nothing but vampires. And you were like, oh, yeah, there was that one Smashing Pumpkin song that had a song that metaphorically yeah. referenced vampires. Of course. You could have asked if they sparkled. Yeah. No. <laughs> if, if I'm not going go to go to Twilight. Like, you could have asked if Vampira showed up. You could have taken Did Anna Paquin show up? Right, exactly. You could have <laughs> True Sookie Blood. There? Yeah. Um, no, I like, I like Planet of the Vampires, even though mm. like the first ten minutes I thought, Oh man, people must just like this because it's corny. Because there's no way that they think this is good. Uh, and so, if you watch it, it is on instant, along with a lot of uh, Baba's other films. Too. Yeah. So, if you if awesome, you, if you wa- go ahead and check it out on instant, uh, listeners, just be aware it gets a lot better after the first ten minutes. And the first ten minutes almost serve as a way of setting you up to make what comes almost a little scarier. It's like the time to get the popcorn and use the bathroom and make sure you're all settled in your seat. Right. You don't actually I'm need sure to know how that drive ass- It was like a drive-in mainstay to be really slow going on those movies. Oh, yeah. Well, was that? Well, I guess that depends on if 
I guess it doesn't depend. I guess all those kinds of movies eventually ended up in the drive-in. But I know if, if it was an AIP production, that would definitely be the case. But then if it was just an AIP release... They usually re- recut all his movies. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, they All the versions you're seeing now are the original Italian versions. Except for, I think, and I didn't watch it, I forgot. I think the version of Black Sabbath that's on Netflix is the AIP version. With Boris Karloff. And that's mm. another film I want to watch just because it's an anthology. It's very good, and it's genuinely scary. It's the one of his movies that I find genuinely unsettling to this day. Oh, really? Hmm. And it also the is the original uh, Italian Giallo movie. It is. There's one of the anthologies is as close as you get to the very start of that whole genre. Awesome. Are there any other uh, Bava films that you believe are worth mentioning? Well, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty, but that you want to talk I, about? I would like to. I I wanted to. Well, I watched Baron Blood again just because everybody always shits on Baron Blood, and I kind of like Baron Blood. It it was made after. Uh, Bay of Blood, which doesn't really make sense because it's like a throwback. Hmm. But it's also, I realized this time watching it, that that's kind of the point in a way, is that it's it's a movie where the, the, the theme is the old world is killing the new world kind of thing where all these seventy late 70s, early 70s like mod, overdressed uh, rock and roll kids you're, you know, from America, come in to this gothic castle culture and are killed by the zombie of the Baron in horrible ways. And the, like the whole movie, like all boils down to this shot of uh, like, I think he's uh, some sort of security guard. I should have made a note, but he goes to get a soda out of a Coca-Cola machine in the middle of this ancient castle and ends up getting hung by the end of that scene. And it's sort of like the central image is why they, the Baron is angry it's never said flat. I guess it is said flat out, but the Baron is angry because there's Coca-Cola machines in his castle and obnoxious teenagers. <laughs> you could do it. Or twenty something. You could do a pretty. You could do a pretty good uh, supercut of iconic Coca-Cola machines in movies. I was just thinking Doctor Strangelove, where they have to steal the quarters oh, of the Coke yeah. machine. Uh, I was I was thinking uh, Head, the monkeys movie. Where, oh yeah, um, I still need to watch that. I have that of yours. The uh, they find the Coke machine in the desert. I was thinking. And there might be a Pepsi machine in Terminator 2. But, uh, yeah. Well, there's that horrible, horrible uh, version of Hamlet with... Uh, Ham- uh, uh, Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke Hamlet, yeah. where the ghost of his father, who it's I think horrible. is Skarsgård, disappears into a Coke machine after <laughs> yep. he says his speech. Oh, I totally remember that, and Bill Murray's in that. I oh. laughed out loud. I think I was a teenager at the time. I was too young to think that was funny, and <laughs> it, it was, was still funny. Awesome. But the other one I wanted to talk about was Lisa and the Devil, which I rewatched. Um, I didn't get the Blu-ray, but the version on Netflix is the HD version that just came out. Mm-hmm. And that movie is uh, interesting because it's, by all accounts, his most personal movie. Oh, interesting. And it was, it was also a movie that was taken away from him by his producer, uh, Alfred uh, Leone. That's right. Be- a- they wanted to throw in an exorcism kind of and- subplot. And the House of the Exorcism version is, is I think, kind of awful. Like, like I would rather watch uh, Beyond the Door if I'm going to watch an Italian Exorcism. And they're both on Netflix Instant, too, I think. Yeah, I think both versions are on there if you want to compare. And it doesn't make any sense to take this very lyrical... It's, it's a little bit like um, Carnival of Souls 
And yeah, yeah. There's sort of like, oh, is she in like the afterlife all the time? It has and, like an Alice in Wonderland meets Carnival of Souls yep. kind of quality to it. I didn't get to what, finish it, but I got like halfway through what it. What would you say makes this his most personal film? Well, I, I, according to all this stuff, it's it's the movie he wanted to make. He was tired. He, he never really liked being... Well, I guess he liked it at a certain point, but he wasn't happy being typecast as a horror director. And he felt this was a way to make a more lyrical and beautiful and dramatic movie. And then uh, by watching the commentary track, Tim Lucas points out all these uh, parallels between uh, Russian literature, which he was apparently really into, and religious iconography, which he was really into. Um, And then even stuff about World War II, which was personal to him is built into it and that's part of how it doesn't really have a plot per se is because they keep changing up what it's about um and i'm assuming terry savalas plays the devil terry savalas is is never implicitly okay (laughs) uh, but it's it's pretty clear you know the movie ends with him having a uh sort of mannequin version of her which seems Mm. to be the thing that signifies that he has a soul or whatever. I see. That's kind of um, cool. Yeah, and it, it's. It, I think it's a really beautiful movie, and I could totally understand falling asleep to it because it's so dreamy and yeah, the yeah, dialogue is so, you know, bizarre and melodramatic. It's, it's almost like a period film, but then every once in a while they'll throw something in, like a tape recorder, and you'll realize it's not actually a period film. But that's part of the weird space it occupies. Is that it's. It has a great it's, setup. I really dug it. Um, I, yeah. I definitely plan to to finish it. And I, I will say this: Mario Bava, he's the master of the exceedingly fast zoom. <laughs> he loves to it's throw the crash, the crash zoom. Yeah, I think that uh, we didn't. I didn't really talk about when we were talking about Bay of Blood, but I honestly kind of don't like. I, I get kind of sick of his crash zooms and his uh, dissolves in Bay of Blood. I'm not a big fan of those. Mm. And that's I think why I don't really like. That's why I think I don't really like, at least my remember don't not really liking uh, Hatchet for the Honeymoon is because he does even more of it. Oh, boy. Well, that became, isn't that, that feels like an Italian horror staple almost. Uh, well, definitely the crash zoom. Fulci was huge. It, Fulci yeah. did crash zoom really well, I think. Oh, yeah? I mean, you just watched the Beyond. There's a bunch of like, oh, my God, what's that thing I just saw? Crash right. zoom into my face. Crash zoom into the thing I saw. Crash zoom into eyes. Crash zoom into eyes. Crash zoom into eyes. Yep. <laughs> Whereas, like, I guess... Uh, like all the uh, spaghetti westerns had a lot less crash zooms, I guess they had a lot of close ups, but they'd do a cut instead of a crash. Um, but he, I, he definitely overdoes it, and it's funny. I have a book of uh, short horror reviews by a guy who clearly doesn't like Italian horror movies, <laughs> and he always makes mention of uh, Mario Bava being zoom happy, is the way he keeps putting it. Yeah, <laughs> I can see that. It didn't really bother me, but it, it definitely calls attention to them all quite a bit. I just because there's I so many, of I them. can't even picture what a crash zoom would look like in a modern context. Uh, I kind of, I don't. Wes mind Anderson kind of does those, doesn't he? he, he does Wes Anderson does. Uh, they do it a little bit in like like post-born action movies. Like they shaky cam and they'll sometimes, but they won't crash zoom all the way in. They'll like yeah. do a partial one. Well, I mean, yeah, but part of what makes the crash zoom feel like crash zoom to me is that the camera is still and all your like. Yeah, they'll they'll zoom in and out uh, erratically. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but it's not quite the same thing. Wes Anderson will do a zoom, but it's not. I don't think it's necessarily a crash zoom. I think it's he'll draw in or he'll draw out. A f- subject, no, he but definitely. It's not about, I, 
I just watched Moonrise Kingdom for the first time, and he definitely does a couple crashes in that one. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I don't. I, I that's specifically what I was thinking about, and I didn't mm-hmm. think of them as crashes, but I could easily. Be he mistaken. only. It's not a super common one, but he definitely does a couple of them. Kind of. It kind of. When he does it, it feels more like an old, not even music video, but like music promo video, like they would have in the '60s or something. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I guess that brings us to uh, top three. Uh, Jim, what are your top three Mario Bava movies? I'm gonna have to go with uh, Black Sunday. It's number one. And uh, I think I'm gonna. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable going with Bay of Blood for number two, and uh, number three. Mm, it's a tough call uh, between Shock and Kill Baby Kill, but um, I'm, I'm gonna go with Kill Baby Kill. We didn't get into too deep on that one, but I, I certainly had a good time with that. What film. is? What's, what's real quick? What's the premise of Kill Baby Kill? Uh, um, like real uh, quick. Oh my god! <laughs> I just let my brain just because we were in the top three mode. Okay, okay. Without spoiling the movie, does Kill Baby get to kill? There are no babies in killings. Oh. No, no, there isn't. There isn't. It's more of just like a, a you know a, a, a haunted sort of premise again, and she gets to exact revenge. Cool. It's not. Yeah. It's not as groovy as the title implies. No, <laughs> unfortunately, not. A not. Very good title. How it's, it's not. Yeah. Now, in relation to the Pussycat, how fast is it? Yeah. <laughs> um, now, Gabe, wh- what about your top three? It's really hard. I would say um, uh, uh, Black Sunday, and then I I'm really torn between uh, Blood and Black Lace and. Uh, I think I'm going to say Blood and Black Lace and then Lisa and the Devil. I really like Lisa and the Devil, but I also really like uh, Black Sabbath, and I also really like The Girl Who Knew Too Much, and I really like Kill Baby Kill, and I really, really like Twitch of the Death Moon. I I forgot about Blood and Black Lace. Yeah. uh, Do you need Uh, to go redo it, Jim? Yeah. I think number three has to be Blood and Black Lace. I mean, I haven't watched it since last year, but I know I loved it when I, I think saw next, it. I think next year we might have to do another Bava episode. I think and so, cover too. Yeah, we should have Black that. Lace mm-hmm. and Lisa and the Devil. Um, my top three, uh, number one would be Black Sunday, number two would be Bay of Blood, and number three would be Planet of the Vampires. Yeah! All good choices, guys. All right. I mean, a lot of them were just recent. We, we, we talked about this, uh, like, the Monday before we, uh, record, we were planning on recording, but a lot of them were added to Netflix Instant. Yeah, quite a few, like, which was well, very like, cool. They had the Blu-ray releases and then the Netflix Instant just before we did this, as if yeah. they knew. Yeah, it's very convenient. It was. That's been happening a couple times. The uh, Wong Kar Wai Blu-rays were of In the Mood for Love came out just after we. Oh yeah, but Chunking Express was taken off yeah. out of print. Yeah, which I think we. I think we've been timing it pretty well. <laughs> of course, maybe that's why our, the conversation was cut off the episode. Oh yeah, you think our you think our Chunking Express episode our conversation went out of print? Yeah, <laughs> I'm starting to get a little freaked out. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Jim, what's that behind you? Crash Zoom. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So thanks again, Gabe, for being oh, on. Yeah. Gabe, you can read at DVD Active. Um, you can read on our site. Uh, he does excellent work at both places. Um, I don't read DVD reviews because generally I don't care about. I find a lot of people who do DVD reviews, they're they're very much uh, you know audiophiles, and they're very much uh, they you know they're all about transfers and about bit rates and everything. But I tend not to care too much about that stuff. Gabe is a genuinely good film critic, mm-hmm. um, so and anything 
he writes about he puts you know he he gives it thought and care and he's and context so uh definitely check him out on dvd active uh jim where can we find you i'm over here patrick okay yeah how you doing or are you right behind you, Jim? Oh, crack Zoom. Um, oh. I'm over on Twitter at uh, Instant GM um, and Letterboxd. I'm going to start, uh, yeah, updating that thing now that I actually have movies to put on there. That's right. Martha Marcy Nash and Young dot uh, WordPress dot com. I've restarted. I'm, I'm oh, doing good that for you. again. Good for you. Yeah, I took a hiatus because uh, I had no time, and it was it became too much of a pressure to know that I'd have to write about a movie after I saw it. Yeah, but uh, I'm just doing, write at your leisure, bro. I'm I'm back. I'm doing it again, so you can see me there. I'm at Patrick Rapol on Twitter. Um, you can find our podcast at directorsclubpodcast dot com. Please send us some more emails at directorsclubpodcast at gmail dot com. Uh, our Twitter is at DC Podcast, but honestly, just go to the website. There's not a lot of extra activity on the Twitter. Um, yeah, on the Twitter, we just let you know when an episode's been posted, pretty right. much. Well, speaking of which, also friend us on uh, Facebook. Yeah, that way you don't have do to think, worry about when it's going to come out. You'll know immediately. Oh yeah, and our next episode, I couldn't be more excited for uh, Mr. Jay Cheel to return once again, and uh, he's going to be talking about his favorite director, John Carpenter. It's our it's our first time doing a sequel to a director mm-hmm. for an episode, so that we're really excited. We're going to be talking about the thing and they live. If we only waited a little bit longer, the They Live Blu-ray comes out next month. But that's okay. We still have plenty to talk about with that film. So I'm really excited for that episode. And uh, we'll definitely bring up maybe uh, some Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. It'll probably come out like a couple of days after Halloween. But hey, it's all good. We're working on some kind of Halloween bonus episode. I don't want to give it too much away or guarantee anything before it's done. I don't. I don't like counting chickens before... Uh, they're, they're they get chopped off yeah before they're slaughtered yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, you know it, you know maybe just keep an eye on your uh, iTunes inbox or whatever you call it your list of podcasts your RSS feed yeah there you go keep an eye on your RSS keep an eye to the skies any near to the ground uh, and if you can figure out how to do that that that's, that's kind of hard to do than thinking just physically um, and uh, thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening to this episode, guys. And uh, once again, thank you, Gabe, for being on the show. It was great talking to you again. Yeah, you're welcome. It was great. Awesome. All right, thanks, everybody. We'll see you in a couple weeks for the John Carpenter episode. Goodbye. Bye. Here's three balls. Yeah, you got one ball before an A. talk about uh, Vampire Planet, and uh, I can talk about Shock. I might even call it by its real name, Planet of the Vampires. Jim, you fucking douchebag. Kill yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you recorded that. I did. (laughs)
Do you think there are any good episodes? Just of, turn into do, you think there, do you think there are any good episodes of Home Improvement? Um, is there one where like somebody gets shot? <laughs> <laughs> I swear, I thought there was. 